You're listening to the Fanfic Maverick Podcast, the show where I talk to fanfiction writers about their work and the marvelous world of fanfiction. This show may contain adult themes and language. Listener discretion is advised. Hey amigos, Chaos Blue here with a quick reminder before we get today's show started. As many of you know, the time has come to vote for OTW board elections. The OTW is the nonprofit organization that runs AO3, and the board is made up of volunteers who are democratically elected by us, the members of this community. If you were a fully paid OTW member by June 30th of this year, then you are eligible to vote. And I am here to remind and encourage you to please make sure that you vote and make your voice heard. One of the candidates running for election this year has made some very concerning comments about wanting to implement censorship policies that would restrict the type of content allowed on AO3. An alarming sentiment that goes against everything AO3 and the OTW stands for. I am firmly anti-censorship. In the past, we have seen censorship policies completely destroy fandom communities with sweeping purges. Remember the live journal strike throughs, the fanfiction.net and Tumblr purges, the collapse of Delicious and Dig. There are many other examples. This is why AO3 and the OTW exist in the first place, and we cannot afford to allow AO3 to become another place where artistic freedom is restricted and censored. I am not going to say the name of the individual who is running on this censorship platform because it is not my place to tell you who to vote for. You can go to the AO3 website and find the transcripts from the candidates' Q&A chat and then make up your own mind. I am asking all of you who are eligible to vote this year, please vote. Voting is open now and will be open until August 15th, 2022. Vamos, amigos. Let's go, let's go, let's go. And now, on with the show. The following paragraphs are from a fanfiction story titled, There Is No Death, by today's guest fanfiction writer, Scarlet Jedi. When stillness failed to bring him peace, Obi-Wan moved. Through the deserts, across sand and rock, he ran. He ran in the morning, when the day was lit by the gray of pre-dawn, when the air still clung to night's coolness. He ran in the evening, when the setting suns burned at the horizon, but no longer beat down from above, oppressive. He ran at night, like this night, in the time of the Tuscans, with the moons turning the sands blue and the stars guiding his way. It was easier to quiet his mind through motion. A body exhausted physically left little energy for the mind to fret. It was not as deep, not as complete as a stillness meditation. He had to pay some attention to his surroundings. But maybe that was the problem. In the temple, there were places he could go to guarantee isolation. Places where no one would seek him out, or interrupt places where he was safe at his new homestead he was isolated but he didn't feel safe hadn't felt safe since he first landed on Camino and blew the lid off of everything no allowing himself to be that vulnerable when someone could find him was not something of which he was currently capable it was no wonder he failed he pushed himself harder 
No thoughts in his head but the vague sense of navigation, and turned towards the island of rock, jutting from the sand. Rock like this wasn't necessarily the safest place either. The stable footing and protection from the sun made them the perfect place for all sorts of creatures to make their homes. It was small, too small for a cryot cave or a womp rat nest. That didn't mean there weren't dangers, but, well... Venomous snakes and the like were far down the list of things Obi-Wan was concerned about, that he stepped onto the rock without hesitation. He could tell that he had the attention of the island's inhabitants, but after a moment their wariness lessened, accepting that he meant them no harm. He continued on, climbing the rocky platform until he reached the top. Well, the topmost flat surface. There he stretched, feeling the night winds cool his body. Here in the middle of nowhere... He felt himself finally relax. Oh, well, what could it hurt? He slipped off his cloak, folding it to cushion the bare rock, his only concession to age and injury, and sat cross-legged beneath the moons. Placing his hands on his knees and closing his eyes, Obi-Wan breathed in and opened his mind to the Force. Time passed. Awareness returned slowly, burst his body, chilled and stiffened from sitting still, skin itching as his sweat dried, feeling calmer than he'd been in years. And then the world beyond filtered in, the low sounds of the other animals on the rock, the moons in a different place than they had been, and the familiar presence before him. Obi-Wan smiled. Hello, Qui-Gon. He opened his eyes. There sat Qui-Gon Jinn, looking whole and hale and otherwise unchanged from the last time Obi-Wan had seen him, and glowing as pale blue as Obi-Wan's lightsaber. Qui-Gon smiled back. Hello, Obi-Wan. It's been a long time. To the north, south, east, and west four quarters of the world, greetings from the wild, arid desert of the American Southwest. I'm your host, Chaos Blue, and this is the Fanfic Maverick Podcast. Our special guest fanfiction writer today is Scarlet Jedi. She has been a member of AO3 since 2012, and she has 64 fanfiction stories posted for fandoms like Lord of the Rings, The Hobbit, Star Wars, Supernatural, Glee, and a host of others. Scarlet Jedi is a practicing pagan and a fabric craft enthusiast. She loves knitting, embroidery, and also makes clothes and costumes. Hell yes. She plans to tackle quilting next, which is amazing, and has also started handbinding fanfiction for her own personal collection. Scarlet Jedi is an academic with an MFA in creative writing and teaches writing at the college level, which I think is amazing. She's also a huge science fiction and fantasy fan and has been collecting Star Wars memorabilia since the 90s. Scarlet Jedi, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. Welcome. How are you? Oh, good. Wonderful. I am slowly unmelting because it is far too hot in this country right 
Yes, heat wave. <laughs> but I'm very happy to be here. I was so excited when I when I heard from you. This is so exciting. Thank you so, so much. We're going to talk about some really awesome fandoms today that I've been yes. wanting to cover for quite some time. So we'll get into that in a second. But you know, I was very intrigued when I learned that you teach writing on a college level. I think that is so awesome. I have a question for you. I don't know if you have an answer to this at all, but I have been very, very curious about the change in culture when it comes to fan fiction in academic spaces. I graduated college quite some time ago, so it's been a long time (laughs) since I've been in college. So fan fiction and talking about fan fiction was not a thing when I was in college. Like you kept that shit secret, right? Yes. But I have been told that slowly but surely, fan fiction culture is starting to be something that's more open with the Gen Z generation, which Gen Z is starting to attend college and all of those things. So I was just wondering if you have seen in any of your interactions with students, like, has any of that fan fiction culture sort of bled through in academic space that you've been able to to see in your work? I mean, that's a very good question. I mean, yes and yes and no. So what I've seen since I, you know, I did my my undergraduate early 2000s and I was out of graduate work, like mid 2000s. So I was, it's been 10 years since I've been, I've been teaching. And in those 10 years, I have started to see graduate papers and theses being written, theses being written on fandom and fandom culture. Uh, there's the transformative works kind of uh, academic journal. We were talking before we were recording about Henry Jenkins and all of that. So Catherine Totzenberger is another big name. So like these things started happening, these conversations started to happen in academic space. And then you started to see classes that were analyzing fan fiction and fan fiction culture, which was so bizarre, but so fascinating. Wow. Because, I mean, I was, you know, we'll get into it in a minute, but I was in fandom as of the mid 90s. At that time, this was something that happened in the dark, quiet night spaces when it was just you and your computer alone on the internet. Exactly. Talk about this in public. Absolutely not. But then we have this course that's talking about, you know, the Dean Cass, everything that was supernatural, you know, and, and all of this and, and these things are cropping up. So, yeah, no, there's very much more of an acceptance of it. There's more talk about it. And what I'm seeing in the classroom are students who have more visible markings of fandom in their person, not necessarily in their writing, because... I teach, primarily I teach first-year writing, so I'm teaching essay basics. So it's a lot of, this is what an essay looks like, this is how you write an essay, this is what a thesis statement is, this is what a thesis does in your paper, this is how you formulate and draft a thesis, and how you craft an argument, and importantly, how you read and analyze text. So critical reading is a big part of what I teach, and learning how to pull out meaning from phrasing and things like that. So there's a lot of that kind of interpretive work. In some of the higher level courses that I've taught, I do see some of it coming out. Uh, I taught a, uh, I teach a, not every semester, but every other semester or so, a research methods course, which is also, again, very textual analysis based. 
that has a big research project. So it's individualized learning. Everyone's writing their own research project. They get to choose their own topic kind of thing. And for a while I was teaching it in speculative fiction was the topic. And you would talk about and analyze uh, various pieces of media, kind of short form in class. Like I, there was one day I showed them an episode of the Batman animated series and we were talking about kind of the psychology of, you know, Batman and all of that in class. So you're starting to see those kind of meta conversations come forth. And I believe that I've had one or two research projects that semester that kind of glanced past fandom spaces, but no one's really done a, a deep dive in my experience. But the fact that they're glancing past tells me that it's only a matter of time. You know, like it's it's coming. It's just not not here yet because Gen C is what I've noticed. And this is something that a, a, a part of a conversation that I saw elsewhere, uh, kind of on the Internet, is that Gen Z is very, very upfront as a generation, very forthwith, forthright. They say what they're thinking flat out. And millennials, elder millennial here, uh, we don't do that. <laughs> You don't just say <laughs> no. what you're thinking. You allude to what you're thinking with a snarky remark. You, know? <laughs> right, you, right. you give a sly comment and you're sarcastic about it. But I was just about to say, it's all masked in sarcasm for oh, us absolutely. elder millennials. Right? The more <laughs> layers you have to peel back to get to what you really mean, the better you've said it. <laughs> so it's very much a, oh, you just said that out loud <laughs> kind, of, kind of vibe, which is, I think, necessary. For certain things, I think kind of culturally right now, especially in America, we're going through this great kind of peeling back of the facade. And it's very much akin to, I would say, uh, if you want to like renovate your bathroom and you peel back around your shower and find that you've got mold behind your shower and you have to kind of dig out everything and rebuild. Some of the things that are getting peeled back are revealing toxic stuff, honestly. And I think the ability to shine a light and to say things as they are, as you see them, is very important. But I also think that that comes with a lack of nuance that can be not just frustrating, but can be ostracizing because it it doesn't allow for growth over time necessarily. And of course, obviously, everything I say is kind of broad sweeping generalizations. And there's always going to be kind of individual examples to the contrary. But I think the patterns that we're seeing are very much, no, we're going to say it like it is, but there's no room for nuance or less room for nuance, I should say, less room for nuance. So it's going to, it's going to be interesting. It is. It's, it's interesting and exciting that fandom spaces are starting to become part of these important conversations. And so that's a very cool thing to to look forward to and look for, you know, as we start seeing the young kids like, you know, grow up and go to college and launch into the world. But I also do agree with you that a lot of the discourse I see, and this is all online, you know, mm -hmm. but yeah, I agree that a lot of the discourse that we're starting to see from the younger folks, especially sometimes do lack that nuance. And I, I don't know where that's coming from exactly. <laughs> and maybe I'm just looking at it from an academic bent myself, Possibly. but I'm like, okay, where's the, where's the gray area here? Where's the nuance? Where's the, you know, so it, it's a very interesting thing to watch quite absolutely, honestly. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think one of the fandoms to watch now as kind of a case study for this is uh, the Our Flag Means Death fandom. Ah, 
Oh, one of my favorites. You know, I like most, you know, queers of a certain age saw these pirates fall in love and went, this is all I'm going to talk about for the next, you know, foreseeable future here. And absolutely love the show. I'm actually um, working on a fic for the Our Flag Means Death Big Bang. Oh, yes. So beautiful. Can't talk about it in detail, but that is that is a thing that's coming for me. But one of the things that I've seen from this fandom in particular is that, first of all, a lot of it's on Twitter, which is odd for me because I'm so used to fandom being on Tumblr. But you have older fans really resonating with the show because the characters are older, I think. And you have younger fans who are rejoicing in seeing, and both sides are rejoicing in seeing happy queer romance on stage, you know, between these two older gay men who, you know, it's like, ah, I can see myself older and in love. This is awesome. But then it's also, oh, no, this is explicit. They're actually, this is happening. So you have this kind of, it's one of the first kind of popular gay shows out there. And then you have the different fandom ages kind of looking at this and going, reacting to it in very different ways. You know, you have, I've seen attempts to, to do the micro labels, you know, and try to figure out whose sexuality is exactly what, and you have pushback to that. But you also have like the cast involved with the fandom space which really brings to light how little separation there is now. I think once you get fandom into a public space, like that separation is going to be very hard. And like, I was in Teen Wolf, you know, I have been in fandoms where interaction with the cast has gone badly, you know, so I'm watching this, like biting my nails over here, like, oh God, when is this going to go bad? And it hasn't yet. So I don't, I don't know how to feel about that. But <laughs> yeah, I do think yeah. it's going to be an interesting, like, I do think it's going to be a, um, it, people are going to look back on it and kind of earmark it as a kind of a cultural shift between older ways of fandom and newer ways of fandom. So you had like, like first gen fandom, which is, I'm going to categorize as like a fanzines pre-internet dominated by like Star Trek fanzines kind of fandom. Then you had early internet fandom, which is pre-AO3. Then you have the AO3 era. And I think now you're going to have the public era, you know, and you have different kind of ways of being a fan or participating in fandom, I should say, kind of marked in each. Right, exactly. And it has been so interesting. I agree with you that um, I get a little nervous sometimes when I see the discourse happening on Twitter about our flag means death, because on the one hand, you're just thrilled because like, I have never seen show creators interact with fandom spaces on this level before. You know, it's not just a passing like nod and a wink like has been in the past it's an actual like interactive this is so cool you guys are amazing you know vico doing cosplaying themselves and you have uh con o'neill liking every piece of izzy hands fan art that exists including the smut uh you have they're reblogging it (laughs) reblogging it taika with the eggplant emojis like we see you sir you have reese darby who just went oh you know what i'm a sex symbol now all right i'm gonna lean into it and it's like 
the embracing is amazing, but all I'm waiting for, I'm waiting for the other shoe to drop. And that is absolutely, (laughs) I think, a testament to how old I am. (laughs) Well, you know, I think that we both grew up in the era where we were taught by our elders very loudly taught. You do not like share this shit with the creators of a show silent because Anne Rice is coming for you exactly it was like a huge no-no to share your shit with an actor with a show creator with a writer producer whatever and so like you're kind of seeing those rules being tested these days a little bit in a way and I don't know I have opinions on it on both sides but it's just so interesting to see kind of that that culture clash between there's a show oh what is it I don't remember what it's called but I keep seeing it like mentioned on Twitter, where actors are going to be doing dramatic readings of fan fiction about them. Oh, it's the very, very rude puppet show on Channel 4 in the UK. I just did an episode about that that dropped last week. But yes. Oh, that scares me so much. And it should. It should. I do not like that. No. At all. I've been very vocal about it. <laughs> sort of like it's it's one thing for it to be there and it's another thing for it to be solicited because right. it very much smacks of the Graham Norton show. Yes, exactly. It was where fandom and fan fiction, especially, and I'm not sure fan art because I never actually watched the show, but it was held up as a, an object of ridicule. Actually, it's that research course that I mentioned before. The topic of this past semester was love and sex. So one of the things we talked about was the kink community, which I'm not saying that fandom spaces are part of the kink community, but I am saying that I've seen a lot of kink in fandom and in fan fiction, and I've seen resources shared, and I've seen, like, there is some sort of, because it is a counterculture and it is a subculture and there sex is involved, so there's going to be some overlap. But it's the equivalent of... It's, it's like a, that show could be how to build a sex room for the kink community. You know, like that could be the parallel. Right. But I don't know if it is. And I also haven't actually seen a reaction from the kink community about how to build a sex room. I've just seen people watching it and going, this is the best thing ever. And I've seen, I saw the first episode. It is hysterically funny and very respectful from the point of the show creator so it's 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 interesting it's interesting it is it is it's so interesting to see all of these like crazy things coming at us all the time with fan fiction and fandom and you know like I said, especially for, I I don't know, folks like us who are a little older, you know, we've Mm -hmm. seen some stuff go down, right? And so we're mostly thinking about like, you know, we're thinking about history. That's where our mindset is. And so when we see these things happen, our minds automatically go back to, oh my God, we've seen this before and it turned out so bad. Like, you know, danger, guys. Exactly. Like red alert, guys. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Exactly. So speaking of history, right? Yes. Tell us about your history with fan fiction. Um, It sounds like you got started sometime in the mid-90s, which is about the time that I got started, too. So tell me about your history with fan fiction. How did you you find that? So I have have actually a a kind of a funny story with this. So from my memory, what I remember when I was mid-90s, right? So this was, I don't remember what year, but it was whenever cable internet became widely available. My dad got an internet connection. So we never had a dial-up 
connection in our house because the first internet connection was this cable one, but it was whenever that first started. So it was like 96, maybe something like that. So that was when I got access to the internet and I was, I had seen Star Wars. I had seen Star Wars several times. I was very much everything was Star Wars. I had two collections of toys going. I had my Barbie collection and I had my Star Wars figures and they were growing exponentially, you know, uh, KB toys was still around at that time and they had all the Star Wars toys out for like $2.99 each. So we would go and I'd have my allowance and I'd buy every Star Wars toy I could and then go home. And then eventually that shifted to us going to Barnes and Noble and me getting every Star Wars novelization or tie-in that I could and buying those. So I have every Star Wars book between from like the beginning (laughs) up until like mid New Jedi Order run. Like I have had, I've owned at some point, whether I still have them is up for debate, but I owned it at one point. But this was the way I was viewing Star Wars was I have this thing and I love it and I want more of it. So the very first thing I did when I got an internet connection was I searched for Star Wars using, I think it it must have been Yahoo, you know, because Google didn't exist yet. (laughs) It did not, no. So it probably was Yahoo, Ask Jeeves or something. something It might have been Ask Jeeves. Oh, goodness. (laughs) But I found a bunch of Star Wars fan sites, uh, including one that was, it was a blue site with with the star field, and it had the, like, nitty Star Wars theme playing and the moving gif of the star, of the lightsaber that would, like, extend. And it was like, this is how you become a Jedi yourself. And it was like meditation techniques. And I'm like, you know, however old I was in 1996, like 10 years old, going, I'm going to be a Jedi. And this was like <laughs> the most exciting thing that I've ever seen. And through that found, I think it was the newrepublic.net or something oh, like that. Okay. Yeah. So it was like the main fan site, the one that was like authorized by Star Wars Insider Magazine, which I had a subscription to. And loved the catalog. I wanted Luke Skywalker's Bespin jacket, like, no tomorrow. But I found this website, and it had connected to it a fanfiction archive. And this was fanfiction that was, again, hosted by this fan site. But I think it had to, it, looking back, it had to have followed certain rules in order to be hosted there. So there wasn't, I, th- I think there might have been one slash fanfic there but most of it was Jen a lot of it was dealing with stuff that was happening in the books you know a lot of Luke Callista kind of stuff Luke Mara kind of things and I would like more Star Wars obviously yes I'm going to read all of this because it's more Star Wars and then I found that like one slash fic and was like what is this Luke and Wedge what yeah I can see it and like read it and like was like, oh yeah, okay, yeah, that 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 makes sense. And just kept going. And like it didn't really click. And then the fic disappeared. <gasps> no. So I don't know if they took it down or if I just couldn't find it again. But that got me searching for more Star Wars fanfic. And that got me into like I found the the Han Luke website, like the archive that they have, and kind of knew it was there and kind of wasn't really worried about it. But like other like finding other websites that were, you know, people made their own. There was uh, web rings, like the Yahoo oh, web yes. rings. I would use those to find more sites. 
and then found, so like that was when I started reading fanfic through, through that is when I started finding other fandoms. So I, there was a, uh, it was a rich text file fanfic that I found and read because I was using crossovers to find new things to like read or watch. And it was, it, I remember it was XDS was the name of the fanfic and it was Star Wars was the S and the X was the X-Files and the D was the show called Do South that I'd never heard of. Oh, nice. But I knew what X-Files was. I never really, like I watched an episode here and there because I was younger, you know, and I knew what Star Wars was, of course. And I'm like, well, I know two of the three things, so I'm going to read this and read it, loved it. I'm not sure I understood all of it because, again, I was like 10, 11, but went downstairs and turned on the TV to watch the X-Files because I'm like, you know what? I read this fic. Let me watch more X-Files and caught the last five minutes of a Due South episode and went, wait a minute. They're both on TNT. And that's what got me started to read Due South fanfic. And that was really when I think I became a fan fiction fandom person. You know, the minute I got that second fandom, it was all over because Due South is where I really discovered Slash. Yes. Oh, there was so much Due South Slash online. Oh my God. I started with Frasier and Franny and because that was what I knew and then found Frasier with the first Ray with Ray Vecchio. And I went, oh, oh, I like this more. Because the first one I read had something to do with, I think they went to go see like the Rocky Horror Picture Show, which I had also just seen for the first time. And I went, oh, oh, okay, there's something here that I like. There's something here that resonates. I'm going to read more of this. And then that switch flipped and it became all I read. It didn't matter what fandom it was. If it wasn't Slash, I wasn't interested. And really kind of dug deep. And then I watched the Kowalski episodes and was lost. <laughs> I was like, all right, this is where I live now. Okay. Nice. Yes. <laughs> and was really, I remember being very kind of saddened for a long time because there really wasn't proportionately a lot of Slash and Star Wars, which was my first love fanfic. And there was, there was the Luke Han stuff, which was, I found out later, deliberately squashed. But that wasn't ever really a ship that I had. Like, yeah, okay, but I liked Han with Leia, so I wasn't really, didn't really want to mess with that. So I'm like, Luke, Luke is very obviously gay. I don't understand why the rest of the world can't see this, but he has no one, like, there, there's no one there the same way that, like, Fraser had either Ray or, you know, you had, I was reading the Sentinel stuff too, because this was, I was online in the 90s. Of course, I was reading oh my Sentinel God. stuff. Oh, of course you were. Blair oh, I loved Jim. that Sentinel stuff. Oh yes. my god! I was. I, I had. I feel like I had like the big, the heavy hitters. I was due south. I was Sentinel. I was Stargate. Uh, more so Atlantis than than SG One. I know I was there. <laughs> I was in it. So re uh, reading mostly reading. I started writing when my mom got internet connection. So I was about fourteen at the time, and because she waited a couple years because she mom's attitude towards the internet and computers is you have it at your dad's house oh, you need it for school oh, okay i guess we can have one kind of kind of thing but having a computer of my own and an internet connection of my own 
allowed me to build my first GeoCity site, to get my first fanfiction.net account, and I started to write not in the fandoms that I was reading, <laughs> uh, but in Harry Potter, because oh, I... Of course, of course. Like, every... I don't want to say like every millennial, but like many millennials, like I was of an age where I was 14 when the Goblet of Fire came out. I was Harry Potter's age. So, you know, one of the one of the things that has kind of been a, a an earmark of or a benchmark or I don't know, some kind of marker for my fan fiction career is the fact that I got like so many my start in this fandom that is now so laden with problem you know i don't have my star wars my my i'm sorry i have all my star wars books i don't have my harry potter books anymore you know i don't read anymore like i haven't read harry potter fanfic in a very long time and i really stopped kind of seeking it out before jk went completely off the rails but you know she's a exercise i think in how do you handle toxic people in your community and i have decided to not support her anymore because i absolutely think that what she's doing is abhorrent i don't want any part of it but at the time this was all anyone could talk about and it's what i was interested in and it was i was writing and my first fanfic that i wrote that i remember writing was a harry potter and Highlander TV series crossover. Oh my god, that sounds amazing. It was hosted on, I think it was on fanfiction.net, but I don't remember. It was absolutely on my GeoCities. Horrible, horrible. Think of every stereotypical bad GeoCities <laughs> website. Black, <laughs> black background, neon green writing. You know, welcome to the madhouse kind but of But I like, loved those. Uh, Oh, that's absolutely I what loved I was. them. Yeah, that you had the, the little MIDI music, you know, yes, that would pop I up when you go myself, to the website. And... I told myself I wasn't an emo kid, but I absolutely was. I was just a fan fiction emo kid. Oh my god. Um, but it was called Harry Potter and the Oldest Immortal. And it was the main pairing was Snape and Mythos. Oh my god. I love that. I absolutely love that. So it was chapters long and it was I don't, I really don't remember a lot of it, but at the time I was reading a lot of Harry Potter fanfic because I'd done the thing. I read the book. I want more of it. There's more of it coming, but I don't want to wait that long. So I'm going to go online and see what people are writing. And so I would go through uh, fanfiction.net at the time and like deliberately search for the slash warnings. And that's what I ended up writing. The first one was, was it was the first thing that I ever really wrote. It was, I finished it. It was huge, but I did finish it. I got art for it, which was oh, wow. incredible. It was a photo minute kind of like cover art for it. It was it was such a wonderful experience. It was part of the reason why I decided that I wanted to write professionally. Because I mentioned before that I have a I have an MFA, I have a Master of Fine Arts, it's in creative writing, uh, specifically novel form creative writing, because that's what I wanted to do when I went to grad school. I'm like, I want to be a writer. I want to be a novelist. And then fell kind of backwards into teaching and I'm good at it and I like it. So I'm doing it while trying to get a book together on the side. But I really decided that I wanted to pursue writing professionally because of the writing that I did then. Around grad school, speaking of, 
my mom was going through her old files and she found a journal. It was a little bit bigger than like a academic blue book, you know, like that you would take a test in that my kindergarten teacher had given us to practice writing. So we were encouraged. I remember in kindergarten writing simple stories to kind of practice our sentences. Yeah. And we were very much encouraged to write in this blue book. And she handed it to me. She's like, oh, hey, I found this. I'm like, oh, cool. And I'm flipping through it. And I get to the end, get to the back of it. And I realized written in the back of it, incomplete, was a Muppet Babies fanfic. (laughs) That I had written, like, kindergarten, first grade, somewhere around there. Um, Oh, my God. So apparently, I was writing fanfic since I learned to write. I have no memory of writing it, of course. (laughs) But that was kind of where I started. I started reading Star Wars and then kind of due south in the big 90s slash fandoms. I started writing in Harry Potter because I'm a predictable millennial. And uh, my first ever fanfic was Muppet Babies. I love that. I love that story for so many reasons, because like anytime anybody mentions the Holy Grail 90s fandoms, like it just warms my heart because that's exactly (laughs) where I was in the 90s reading. You know, I I would throw in the A-team with that because I read a lot of A-team fan fiction too, but I was all over Due South. I was all over the Sentinel, X-Files, you know, all that stuff. And of course, like Star Trek and all that. Yes. Spiced Peaches. Oh, yes. Because oh, I was geez. a big, I still am, like, I, I, Kirk Spock is, you know, it's iconic for a reason, but that was never really kind of where I was drawn. Spock McCoy, now, that's an interesting pairing. That's something I can dig my teeth into and have. Oh. I have written oh, that pairing. Oh, I love that because I love all of those. I love Kirk Spock. I love Spock McCoy. I love the triumvirate where it's the OT3 between all three it's of good. them. So, it's so good. Oh, my God. So, yeah, one of these days I'll have to get uh, triumvirate to write her on here because I think that'd yes. be special. It helps but, um, that the show was written to kind of really hold those three up as a unit. Oh, yeah. You know, that oh, actually yeah. helps. <laughs> and when you watch it, when you go mm-hmm. back and watch like the old original, you're like, okay, this was done on purpose like I'm sorry but it was absolutely done on purpose like you guys created this like shipping it you know we're not imagining it okay so (laughs) just throwing that out there but um I love how many writers I've talked to who will tell me that they started writing fan fiction like when they were little kids without even knowing what fan fiction was which sounds kind of like what you were doing with the Muppet Babies fan fiction but my next question about yes. like fan fiction as a concept, I love that I'm asking you about this oh. in particular because you have like this really interesting perspective where you have the academic side of writing and all of that stuff, you know, from your academic career. But then you're also coming at it from your long history as, you know, a fandom person. You've yes. been reading fan fiction about as long as I have, which is amazing. So I'm just kind of wondering, like, what are your favorite things about about fan fiction as a whole? And like for you, what makes it unique and compelling? I have heard it said, I I didn't come up with the idea. I heard it somewhere on, I think on Tumblr, honestly. Um, But I absolutely agree with it is that it's so freaking punk as a concept and punk in the way that a lot of like 90s queer activism was punk. You know, it's, counterculture it is taking it is looking at a media landscape that is not built for you especially slash fandom but it's not built for you and looking at it and carving out a space for yourself 
within it and taking things that you love and not necessarily making them fit your perspective, but teasing out the things that are related to you and your experience that were written into the show in a way that, you know, cis, white, able-bodied, straight writers, which is most of the people writing, especially in the 90s, weren't doing. Or, when talking about the big 90s ones, couldn't do openly. You know, I, I remember seeing a, an interview with Paul Gross where he was talking about coming back to the first Kowalski season of Due South and saying that it's very homoerotic, the fans are going to love it. Because they knew, you know, they absolutely knew that fans were pairing these two together and that that was part of the appeal. And they played it up. They absolutely played it up as much as they could get away with. Xena, right? Oh, God, Xena yes. and Gabrielle are a canon lesbian couple as much as they could be at the time. And the fandom went, thank you for this. We are now going to write it explicitly because we can and you can't. So we're going to do it. Thank you for this. Thank you for this resource that you've given us. We're now going to play, you know, and... A lot of my favorite fanfics and fanfic genres and fanfic tropes come from that attitude of, we see what you've given us. Thank you. Now you stay over there. We're going to make this relevant to us and our experience and tell the stories that you cannot tell because of censorship. And now more often, because that's less of an issue in certain areas and in certain respects, are too much of a coward. <laughs> Uh, to talk about, you know, so a lot of the more modern fandoms. So, for example, you mentioned Glee, right? So Glee is what I would consider a spite fandom, as was Teen Wolf. These were fandoms, especially in the Slash world. And I'm going to leave the Clane ship out of this because I, I didn't fuck with Clane. Clane didn't fuck with me. So we're, we're talking about other ships. Because that was a monolith and had its own problems, and we're going to leave that alone. But for most of, you know, most of the rest of Glee, Teen Wolf, the fanfic was so much better than the show. And I don't just mean that it was more gay. I mean that there was more internal logic and consistency. And dealing with themes and ideas and just dialogue was better in the fandom. Because you had people who understood storytelling in a different way or weren't constrained by having to appeal to MTV or having to be on a public show or just the rush of trying to recreate or being Ryan Murphy in general. Like, I don't, I'm sorry, I don't like Ryan Murphy. Ryan Murphy has some great ideas on how to start a show, start a story cannot carry through for the life of him ah loses the plot and loses the, the plot in the middle of it takes characters that really could have done something interesting and just throws them away in favor of temporary fandom appeal right or uh, fan, i'm gonna say a, a loud fan appeal you know the claim storyline i think in general doesn't fit the story itself and went in some weird ways and kind of perpetuated some toxic things but, you know, a lot of the Teen Wolf fic I read was really dealing with mythology and what it means to be a pack and the found family dynamic. And a lot of the stuff that the show was trying to do 
but not quite able to do because it also had to be sexy because it was on MTV. Right. So badly executed. So badly executed. But yeah. you also have, you know, that, again, the big 90s stuff. You had stuff that couldn't be talked about on TV. So like Stargate Atlantis, you know, um, I'm going to say SGA explicitly because I, like I said, I didn't read much Stargate SG-1 fic. A lot of it dealt with queer life in the military. You know, Don't Ask, Don't Tell was a big plot point in a lot of fics. That was, uh, you know, the song that I most closely associate with that era is Lovers in a Dangerous Time by the Bare Naked Ladies, because that's exactly what it felt like, you know, and that was for Due South as well. You know, being openly gay on the police force in the 90s was a death sentence in a lot of places. On purpose, you know, not obviously not, you know, sanctioned, but you never knew when if you were out, you know, who wouldn't respond to a call for help, you know, and that was something that was dealt with in those fix. And then like, I have I have a list here that I'm kind of working off of trying to make them all stream together. And it's kind of disjointed a bit. But we mentioned Hobbit fix, but, you know, before the recording. But one of the things that Hobbit fandom did was gender presentation. We saw kind of personal explorations of gender through what is canonically a differently gender presenting race of beings, right? Yeah. So because we only ever see, as far as we know, male dwarves, there was a lot of room to kind of play with that. And because we had the the throwaway joke, you know, what's the difference between dwarf men and dwarf women, you know, there is no difference. You, you can't tell. They both have beards, you know. It really opened the doors to kind of celebrate traditionally gender nonconforming presentations of masculinity and femininity, right? And you also have the kind of the fix that take the canon and kind of use fan fiction to kind of tease out more stuff about it. So like filling in the gaps you know, but in a way that really kind of opens thing up and provides context in a way. So like uh, a lot of Sperenza's Captain America fanfics, for example, especially the ones that deal with life pre Super Soldier Serum, talk a lot about life in the, in the 30s and 40s in America, impoverished inner city, but also kind of the queer subculture that has been kind of wiped from history that you have to kind of dig to find. And there's a lot of queer history written into fandom as part of it. This is the context for the life we're living. As Flamingo's uh, Starsky and Hutch fic is a, like, that whole kind of genre to, like, there's a lot about being gay in the 70s that's baked into that fan fiction that's now kind of a historical record of these counterculture lives that were deliberately suppressed by mainstream culture. There's a fic too by Resonant called Teeth of the Hydra that I'm actually rereading now. Uh, it's a Due South fic that dealt with, you know, it's, it says in the summary that it's about tattoos, but it's also about consent, but also about the punk scene and how queer the punk scene was and is. Yeah. In a way that isn't really talked about because there's also sections of the scene that are violently homophobic. So, you know, it's a very interesting kind of thing you have this uh, to kind of kind of summarize you have this kind of mainstream culture that is giving these kind of raw resources 
to authors who don't fit into the mainstream in one way or another, who are ostracized. Not ostracized. Ostracized might be too far, but who are othered by mainstream. They're women. They're gay. They're disabled. They're, they're not white, right? They're not cis. They're not, you know, not, 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 not. And they're writing their own identities and their own experience into a narrative that would otherwise leave them behind. And I think that's absolutely beautiful. And I also think it's so, like I said, it's so punk. It's, we're here. There is now record of us, which is why I think the strike throughs and the purges were so devastating and why AO3 in particular is so very important because it's keeping this record. And a lot of people look at fan fiction as, oh, it's just smut. It's just, you know, fans playing. It's just, you know, it's silly. And a lot of it is. A lot of it is. There's that infamous, speaking of Harry Potter, the infamous Snape and the giant squid fic. Right? My immortal. Oh, right. Yeah. Famous. But like, what? what even is this? Like, my immortal has its own thing now. But like... A lot of it was, this is stupid. This is silly. But that doesn't mean it's not important, you know? And that doesn't mean that it's not, it doesn't have its place. There has to be room for play. And there has to be room for love and appreciation. So there are some fics like Sansuk in Hobbit, which are absolutely love letters to the original. Absolutely. And those can shine so brightly. Oh, I love that response. I love that so much because you're describing the way that this community reclaims. Yes. You know, we're reclaiming these stories that are like pop culture mythos stories Mm -hmm. for our time. Mm -hmm. And we're reclaiming them and we're owning them and we're turning them into stories for us. And, uh, And I love that about fan fiction, just like you do, that, you know, we're telling our stories And you're right, like the fact that AO3 exists to keep our stories out there so that we don't get purged again is so, so, so important because you're right, like these are not only our stories, but this is our history as well. And it's important that we never lose sight of that and that we always have a place to go where we can see the history because we cannot be erased. We're here. Exactly. We're here whether you like it or not, you know? We are, so, we are, like, <laughs> I'm here, I'm queer, damn it, and I'm going to write about Luke Skywalker <laughs> kissing boys. Right, right. That's the thing that I don't understand about people who get all bent out of shape about these kinds of stories. It's it's like, would you rather we don't exist at all? I mean, we exist. We're here. <laughs> like, yeah. I don't, you know, I mean, anyway. Anyway, yeah, it's a it's a whole nother thing I'm sure we could get into. But before the show, we were absolutely talking about like our earliest memories of like Lord of the Rings yes. and the Hobbit fandoms and, and things like that. It was so great because you remember like old school shit like the... Oh, yeah. What was that? You, you mentioned the Library of Moria. The Library of Moria. Oh, my God. I was there all the time. <laughs> I will not even lie about that. I was a huge, like, um when I was way younger, it was all about Aragorn and Legolas for me. And yes. so, like, oh, my uh, God. So okay. I read, like, every single fucking thing I could get my hands on, you know. And then from there, I branched out to, like, the Hobbit uh, ships and things like that. 
but yeah, like I have the greatest memories of really old school Lord of the Rings fandom. And then I also remember when the Hobbit movies came out and you had this huge resurgence of yes. like Hobbit fandom and fan fiction that happened online. I would say between 2012, 2016, maybe yeah. something like that. Um, and I was totally there for that. <laughs> I remember reading like all of the huge fan fiction stories yes. for The Hobbit. Which I still to this day go back and read because some of these stories are literally the greatest fan fictions that I've ever read Absolutely. in my entire life. It literally changed me, you know, like yes. literally changed who I was as a person on a molecular level. And I cannot explain what I mean by that exactly. No, but I, I do know what you mean. Yeah, you know what I mean, where some of these stories were just so incredible, just so incredible. There's one uh, that I... I'm not going to say the name of it, but Sailor Fish, you probably will never listen to this episode, but like hats off and fist bump to you because I love your fic. I understand why it's unfinished WIP and, you know, rest in peace for your fic. Not here to harass you on that, but just wanted to let you know, I still read that thing every year, every fucking year. So I just was hoping you would talk to us a little bit about your experiences with Lord of the Rings and Hobbit fandoms. Sure. Particularly, of course, like what you remember about the Hobbit fandom online and on AO3 and all of that good stuff. Yes. Well, okay. So <laughs> speaking of uh, academic band, we're going to start this lecture. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. So like we, we were talking before, I was around six or seven when my mother read to me the Hobbit as a bedtime story because my, my grandmother had recommended it. We had my uncle's copy of the book and it was a chapter a night, every night until we finished it. And then I turned to her and said, please read this to me again. And she insisted on reading something else first, but she did eventually reread me, the, uh, reread the Hobbit to me. She was also reading the, the, we were going through the entirety of Sherlock Holmes and oh, nice. the Hercule Poirot Agatha Christie series because my mother and I bonded really on the kind of British mysteries, the same way that dad and I bonded on like Star Wars. But she read this to me and I loved it and made her read it to me again. And I loved it again. And she said, you know, there's more. And I said, you mean there's more? And we got a copy of the Lord of the Rings and she read those to me. And then she read them to me again. And by that point I was old enough that I could read the books by myself and consistently, and I read them once a year, every year, up until the movies came out. So one of the things that is, I think, important to remember about the Lord of the Rings as a fandom is, especially in America, and especially where I was in America, so like, I, don't, I didn't say this before, but I'm from the New York Tri-State area. I was, I was born within spitting distance of Manhattan in New Jersey. You know, so like 20 minutes across the bridge kind of a thing. And the Lord of the Rings came out. The first movie came out in December of 2021. Nope, I'm sorry. December of 2001, which was months after 9-11. And I know other people have talked about this before, and I really don't want to harp on this too long. But when it's happening on your doorstep, you know, when friends that and family that you know work in New York on a daily basis and then this thing happens, it's very personal and it's very intense. And there's a lot of kind of, I'm starting to see kind of discussion now 
about kind of the effect on millennials of this event, especially millennials who were young when this happened and watched this kind of terrible violence happen and then were plunged headfirst into this fear, which is also on the tail end of Columbine. Right. Yes. I was. was one of the first like classes in my high school to do active shooter drills because of Columbine. I freshman year I remember wearing I I had a, a Western style duster jacket that I loved because it made me look like one of the Highlander characters because I could, you know, I, that's how I expressed my fandom when I was a kid. I would do Cossack cosplays and was told I couldn't wear it. And I didn't understand, like, it didn't click why until until later. And I remember being very resentful <laughs> at the time because it was like, well, I'm not going to do anything like terrible like this. But it fed into this kind of culture of fear. And then the Lord of the Rings movies came out and they didn't fix anything, but they were a cultural phenomenon. They exploded because for four hours, right, you could sit in a theater and watch horrible things happen in a way that you knew that light was going to win, you know, that, that the good guys were going to win. And I, I say light because in the, the, the world, it's very much a light and dark. And there's, you know, we can talk about criticism, literary criticism of the Lord of the Rings later. But what matters is that this was a war. There were war movies, you know, in a, in a certain sense. And we were in war, at war now. And through the persistence and continued effort of a few people who had heart and courage and more conviction that it was more important to preserve love and life than it was to fall to, to chaos and ruin. Like it, it's incredibly impactful. You know, the Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit, so much of it is about love winning over despair and about home winning over everything else. It's really, we saw the first glorifications of the simple farm life, like the simple life, right? Cottage core, what would be called cottage core today? Hobbit core, as you will. And you saw a lot of people all of a sudden dressing as hobbits. You know, you also saw people dressing as Nazgul, you know, and, and there were a couple, you know, elk like Legolas here and there, and I had an Arwen dress, you know. But it didn't change the fact that the first most recognizable image were the little people who didn't really carry weapons, who valued home and hearth and food over warfare and, you know, glory and war. And I think that was a very important thing culturally. But it also coincided with <laughs> the internet in a very real way. And you started to see the kind of collision of two types of fandom because the Lord of the Rings had had a fandom and it was very academic in nature. There was a lot of Tolkien linguist. Tolkien scholarship is a thing. You can get a degree in studying the works of Tolkien because he had, he left not only his linguistic stuff, but his, his works as they were completed, but also drafts, but also unfinished work, but also all of his notes. So sitting down and piecing together and putting together kind of interpretations and deeper meanings, it was almost akin to 
medieval scholarship or like biblical scholarship, looking for more in the text itself was a very inward looking fandom. And then you meet the first generation of, I'm going to say second generation fandom, first generation of transformative fandom, where you got for the first time a large swath of fan fiction, right? And fan edits and, and things like that. There have been movies like the, the cartoons. I love the 1977 Hobbit cartoon. Oh, I used to watch that all the time. <laughs> I watched that. I, I when I used to babysit my cousin, I used to sing her the songs from that as a lullaby. Like this yeah. was this was this was my comfort. Like and still is my my comfort thing. When I when my wife and I first got married, if I was having a very bad day, I would come home and she had already put the DVD in the DVD player. Oh, bless her. That's which is awesome. Very very sweet of her. <laughs> But it was very much a emergence of a transformative fandom. And it was still, I want to say, heteronormative in a very specific way. And that's a weird thing to say about a fandom that was kind of dominated by <laughs> Aragorn Legolas and Sam Frodo. You know, like those were kind of the big ships. But it was very much, nope, this is the way that you interpret fandom. These are the ships that you write. These are, this is how, like, we, we very much want Pretty Boy Legolas with Hot Daddy Aragorn, you know, and we want these two together because very, like, it's very obvious and there's no real room for interpretation from my, my perspective. And of course, I mean, I'm sure there was other people because there were, like, Legolas and Gimli Fix did exist, but the movies are very elf forward. Like, Peter Jackson loves his elves, and the elves get a lot of respect, and the dwarves were kind of a joke in in the movie, which you can find, you know, dwarf, I don't want to say dwarf apologists, but the dwarf defenders will look at you and be like, the, the characterization of Legolas and Gimli are reversed between the book and the movie, that Gimli is much more noble, and Legolas is very silly, <laughs> you know, but, you know, you had this kind of, on librarymoria.net uh black again black screen green text rich text file style fix that were still i think i think they were still on the the black and green i don't think you clicked through to a rich text file but very much that kind of setup where you clicked you know you clicked into it and then there was just lists of pairings and then you would click into it and then there was lists of titles with authors Maybe there was a summary, maybe not. There certainly weren't Probably warnings not. or tags or anything like <laughs> nope. that, but it was very much the wild, wild west of fanfic. Enter at your own risk. Enter at your own <laughs> risk. What's here? They'll tell you the pairing. Maybe. <laughs> you know, maybe maybe you got a rating. Maybe. It's like, this, yeah. is, this is an explicit work. Because we were already kind of starting to move past the citrus scale. So you weren't seeing lemon or lime on fanfic. You were seeing, like, movie ratings. And then that kind of faded once the movies were finished and kind of entered this kind of lull where they were still there, but you weren't getting the same volume. A lot of the original writers kind of like, if it, the fic wasn't finished, the fic wasn't going to be finished kind of thing. And it was there as kind of this, this relic. And then <laughs> this ruin, so to speak, speaking of, you know, the Lord of the Rings is a post-apocalyptic <laughs> story taking a place among the ruins of previous civilizations and then we get the rise of AO3 and the rise of Hobbit fandom among the ruins of the Lord of the Rings fandom <laughs> but you got with the emergence of with the Hobbit movies you got this kind of 
third wave of fanfic, the second wave of transformative fanfic, that was a much more modern take on fandom. It was primarily on AO3. Everything was tagged. It was also on Tumblr. So you got a lot more imaging, a lot more pictures. And you got a focus on the dwarves because they had to really go in and build dwarf culture because Tolkien himself only kind of gave you like three lines and then something in the appendices. And then here we had to make a movie. And so they're like, all right, so we have to do this like a movie and we have to make every character look unique. So the dwarves really varied in their look and the uh, actors got to add their little things to it. And it really developed kind of a secondary dwarf culture that the fandom then picked up and said, okay, we have decided kind of collective headcanon that dwarves don't give a fuck about gender and dwarves don't give a fuck about sexuality because we don't want them to. And now we're going to play. And I think that's beautiful. <laughs> but like I said, I said before, we got to see a lot more gender non-conforming presentations of, of characters. Uh, dwarf sonas became a thing. Um, you see a lot more, uh, you know, I don't want to say bearded ladies, but a lot more more traditionally masculine presentations of facial hair done in very feminine ways. And for a lot of a lot of fans who were thicker, per se, or were more hair sweet, like this was hair suit? Hair suit. Um is very much a ah there I am. There I am on the screen. Look how awesome this is. And I'm heroic. I'm not a joke. That is absolutely beautiful. I add to that, you had uh, the Dwaro Scholar coming through with Neo Kudstool, right? And kind of building up the dwarf language. And a lot of Tolkien fandom, I think even back in the day, was kind of, but especially in, in the new, is built around knowing another language or being able to put another language into it in the same way that like Star Trek has Klingon, you know, like it's very much a, a part of the, a part of the fic part of the, the the fandom experience. So there was a lot more a lot more of that. Plus you had kind of the eruption of Bag and Shield fix. And you had the rise of Gigalus. Both of those things were happening at the same time. It was the only time I have ever seen a resurgent fandom resurrect a part of an older fandom and give it more life. Right? So you had Legolas and Gimli fix. Like they, they were there in the kind of original Lord of the Rings movie trilogy era. But it wasn't until the newest wave, when the Hobbit movies came out, that you saw, first of all, the term Gigalus get coined. Which, I don't remember if I was part of the conversation, but I was definitely watching the conversation happen that coined the term Gigalus as a term. Which was really cool in retrospect. But you started to see people look at Gimli in a new light because of what happened in, you know, The Hobbit. And so, yes, we had these kind of mega fix-it-fix. We saw a lot more fix-it-fix than kind of anything else. A lot of Thorin doesn't die. A lot of Thorin and Philly and Killy don't die. A lot of Bilbo stays as Prince Consort and Erebor. A lot of Thorin retires to the Shire where they raise Frodo as his hobbit son. You know, we saw a lot more of that kind of thing. Plus, so many 
modern AUs. So many modern AUs, including um, like social media AUs. In fact, I have on my bookshelf, I actually bought it. The, it was like my first piece of fandom merch. The social media AU that focused on, it was like Fee and Key, but was also Legolas and Gimli in the background. You know, there was a lot of art kind of emerging. I think partially because of Tumblr, because it was also a visual kind of site. So there was more places for art, but also cosplay. There were a lot of a lot of people going to Renfair as their dwarf owner, you know, and that like that was super awesome. And of course, you can't really mention that era of Hobbit fic without mentioning Sansuk by Dieter Memphis. Like this was the behemoth fic of the day. It's the most epic thing I've ever seen. Everybody read it. It's the retelling all of the Lord of the Rings and some of the Hobbit. And what happens after, and all of the side stories, plus all of the people who contributed. There's so much art, and there's so much fan work of Sansuk. It's almost... Sansuk is one of those fics that gets its own fandom, you know? And it's just so much of, of that era is now kind of coincided. It's, it's synonymous with Sansuk, which was funny, because Sansuk is the reason why Comes Around Again exists. So... I, like I mentioned before, uh, I think before we started recording, I found Sansuk through the kink meme. And so I found it through the original prompt, which was, you know, Thorin watching Gigglis. I, th I think it was through watching, nothing else, watching the company or the fellowship from the afterlife. And I'm so happy that Deeds picked that up because she did such an amazing job. But I remember thinking, you know, it's so cool to watch Thorin and et al., watch kind of the Lord of the Rings. Is there a way to do it in reverse? You know, can we get Gimli watching The Hobbit? You know, what would that look like? Well, it wouldn't be from the afterlife, technically, because he's, he, that's not how time works, you know, but it could be time travel. Okay, but then what would that time travel look like? Well, you could do it, you know, there's different ways to do time travel. And I want to talk about time travel theory in fiction just for a second to kind of explain where I'm, I'm coming from from this. So there are two different ways that people tackle time travel in fiction. You have the science fiction route, where the method of time travel is part of the story. So like the DeLorean or the TARDIS, right? In Back to the Future and, you know, Doctor Who, respectively. That's part of the world. And then you have... The other track, which is kind of the more literary track, because I see it mostly in like magical realism and things like that, where the method of time travel is never explained. So in 2012, when I started on AO3, I was in graduate school. And that's kind of where I started teaching. And my first course that I taught uh, was, again, first year writing, but it included literary analysis of a book. And the book that they had to read was Kindred by Octavia Butler. And Kindred uses time travel. The, the basic kind of premise is that it uses time travel to explore systemic racism. The main character is a black woman in the 70s who, with no reason and no knowing how, time travels back to a plantation in the antebellum South in Maryland and then has to deal with that 
she goes back and forth a couple times, one time bringing her white boyfriend back with her and then dealing with the fallout of that, coming to the ultimate conclusion that some things have changed on the surface, but not a lot has changed. Ultimately, that this, the, the effects of systemic racism is that the things have changed on the surface, but not any deeper than that. And it uses this mechanism of time travel that happens without forewarning and without explanation. And at the time that I was started to write, I had just finished teaching that book. And I went, well, I want to do time travel. I don't want to deal with any of this other, like, how does it happen stuff. So he's just going to time travel. And that is the way that I have tackled every single time travel anything ever, is that if the point of the fic or the story is to see these characters interact or to explore or to do something with future characters and future knowledge in the past, then it doesn't matter how they got there. It matters that they got there. So none of my characters know why they time traveled and comes around again, they have some, like they have a theory, but it's never confirmed. And that's on purpose. And it's absolutely borrowing that from Octavia Butler, who, uh, if you're listening, if you've never read Kindred, I can highly recommend the book. It's very good. And it's very easy to kind of pick up the subtleties because it's not very subtle. It's a very good book, but also got me thinking about, about time travel. So with time travel kind of circling in my head and obsessing over this fanfic that I had found that was just so well done. I wrote the first chapter and I put it up on AO3 and it got, you know, it got enough traction that I kept going with it. And then eventually Dietz commented on it and I went, I have to finish this now. I have to write for Dietz. She, she found me. I have to, I have to provide the, it took years to write, but it might not have been finished if it wasn't for occasionally playing tag with Dietz and then eventually with Corey, who did a lot of the art uh, for the fic, is that um, they started giving me art and I started giving chapters in return because a lot happened during the, the time I was writing that. We we were living in an apartment. I got married during the, the time I was writing it. Um, my job changed uh, a bunch, like a bunch of times. I was adjuncting and bouncing between universities and kind of trying to to make ends meet when I was working full time on a part time salary and then having to take a long furlough over the summer. Yeah, but that was kind of the the behind the scenes of how it was created. And my my wife is also a, a fan of Lord of the Rings and much more a fan of like I was always dwarfs and and elves, and she was very much. Aragorn and, and the kingdoms of men. So between the two of us, we were really able to kind of figure it out. And she actually sat down with me one day and helped me plot out the next three books. There are three more fics plotted for Comes Around Again that I desperately want to get back to, but have not been able to because of life because of other things that I have to do because I look at it and go I have no idea what I'm doing with this right now and I'm hoping that you know some of it is also the the hyper focus shifted you know so I I'm not saying never I'm not saying that they're abandoned you know and if Dietz can come back years later and finish I can too but I have a plan I just need to you know just need to execute it and kind of figure out where I'm going and, and adjust some things but 
yeah, no, that's kind of where, where we were and where that came from. Oh, I love hearing about where that came from. Because yeah, when I found this, you know, you were talking a little bit about the conjunction between Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit earlier. And that's how I felt reading this, because obviously, like a huge chunk of this is Gigalus, which by yes. the way, like I love, I love, oh, like I remember being a kid, right? Mm-hmm. And reading Lord of the Rings. And I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but I vividly remember in the Lord of the Rings canon story in the book, they run off together. They do. They do. They do. They fucking run <laughs> off together. And I remember people saying, oh, well, they're just explorers. They're running. And I was uh, like, on the same damn horse, <laughs> on the same damn horse, they're running off together. In really? The same boat. Yes. Like, it just didn't make sense in my head as a kid. I was like, no, there's something else going on there, guys. Like, I just know it. <laughs> on one of my rereads of Lord of the Rings, I realized that I had taken a pencil and I had started underlining all of the gay moments that happened between the two <laughs> yes. of them in canon. Oh, there's so many. There are so many. <laughs> there are so, so many. And so, yeah, like, I that just always stuck in my brain of like, yeah, they totally run off together. Mm-hmm. So, like, you know, reading this was such a delight for me because, okay. like, I love that. And then you do, like, combine it with the bag and shield stuff. So it was yes. just really interesting. And of course the whole time travel, which like I'm with you on the whole time travel issue. Like I do not need to know how it happened. That is not important to me at all. The only thing that matters is that it happened, you know, and it was just so gorgeous to be able to see him come back because, you know, there's part of me that thinks, Oh, you know, dwarves are so awesome. They're so amazing. They live such a long time, but in comparison to how long an elf lives, like, it's nothing. It's a drop in the bucket. 250 to 300 years is about what you're going to get as a dwarf. And so, like, how sad is that, that you only got a little bit of time with the person that you love, and then you end up dying. And that's kind of where the fic, you know, starts Ticks is off, yeah. his, yeah, his death and how sad that is because, uh, yeah, then you have the whole fading thing that's going to happen with your elf, like, <laughs> you know, husband who cannot handle you being gone and is going to die. So, like, a lot of stuff going on here. So it was beautiful that he gets shot back to the past immediately. And not only him, but Legolas gets shot back into the past as well which was just ugh, chef's kiss so good because of course you want them to be together i had considered um having them fall in love again and having gimli meet legolas for the first time where gimli remembers them being married and this is the first time legolas met gimli yeah i was wondering if you were going to go there (laughs) i thought about it and went i don't trust myself to write that (laughs) i would much rather write them already together and if nothing else that gives give a different flavor to it but it's a different it's a different story being told and i so much already gimli already had so much on his plate i didn't want to add having to deal with his husband during his the highlight of his being a dick era that also we might need a legolas that remembers plus somewhere in my reading of the you know lord of the rings esoterica there was the the what an elf marriage is kind of thing. And apparently there's, you know, elves are vaguely psychic and there is a mental bond that exists between married elves. And I went, well, a mental bond between an elf and a dwarf is obviously enough to drag the second one back with him. So Gimli time travels and Legolas gets dragged along in his wake. 
is actually technically what happens. I don't think I ever actually, I don't know if I ever actually talk about that, but that's part of the reason why Legolas has such a hard time adjusting is that he was almost an afterthought in the process. And also elves have perfect memory. So he has trying to, you know, deal with the kind of psychic shock of time travel. Plus he remembers as vividly as this had just happened, but he's also going through the memories currently. So he's have two memories of the same vivid nature kind of warring for, for space. And it's not until Gimli arrives and things start to diverge that he really comes back into his, his own because things are different enough. Otherwise, he keeps kind of going back and forth between being not entirely sure what's happening. Yeah, he seemed to struggle with it a little yeah. bit. He was having a hard time. He was. Poor guy. He was. Aww. He did He did good, though. He did good. But he yeah, he was so beautiful. He was having a hard time. Uh, <laughs> but it was it was awesome, though. It was awesome because, you know, you talked a lot about Fix It Fic being a yes. huge thing, yes. a huge theme in The Hobbit fandom, which it was, it you was. know, and I get it. I get it. To this day, I own The Hobbit's movies one and two. I refuse to own the third one because it's just too sad. I can't do it. I cannot do it. So, like, obviously, like, I'm not alone in my sentiments there about, you know, the sadness of what happens at the very end of The Hobbit. And so you had all of this fix-it-fic, which is what comes around again is about. This is a fix-it-fic, a time-traveling fix-it-fic. absolutely a fix-it-fic, but it is one that I very much didn't want to be just happy stuff. So one of the comments that I had gotten on it was that it, it does the time travel thing without it getting and like giving it the giving the characters the space they need to adjust by still allowing them to act quickly enough for things to get done. And I remember reading and going, well, thank you. I worked very hard on that. But one of the things I love to read are time travel fix. I love to read time travel fix. I love the idea of characters with foreknowledge having to deal with changing the past. But whenever you do that, there's going to be ripple effects you know? And one of the things that I really wanted to do in this was play with the ripple effect in a world that is so tightly written to begin with. So one of the things about Tolkien, the way that he wrote his plot, is you have, you know, good things happen and bad things happen, but a lot of the good things don't happen if the bad things never happened. And a lot of the bad things don't happen if the good things don't happen. And it it really reduces it down to a state of things happen and then things follow. Yeah, there was a balance there. If you change something for the better, so to speak, what's to say that it won't be worse in the future? And some things can't be changed. You know, so one of the things that Gimli deals with is the fact that even though he's trying to change things, some things have to happen. You know, so I think he tries to avoid the trolls, but he can't avoid the trolls because fighting the trolls is what gets them Sting and Glamdring and Orchrist, the swords, you know, so they need to do that. So he, you know, he's trying to avoid it, but even though he set things up so that they wouldn't have to do the thing, they absolutely end up doing the thing. And he's standing there like, wait, wait, wait a minute. No, this isn't, this isn't what I was trying to do. Like, why is this still happening? <laughs> right. But also realizing that he doesn't actually know the past as well as he thought he did, because Gimli didn't live the quest. His father did. What Gimli knows of the events are the stories that his father and the, the surviving members of the company passed on. But that's not necessarily the truth. 
And that's not necessarily exactly as it happened. Because, you know, memory is faulty, but also maybe you don't mention the part where you acted like an ass. You know, maybe you kind of gloss over the fact that Thorin was, you know, mouthing off to the king, and that's why they were thrown at the dungeon. Maybe you don't mention that yeah. part. There may have been some slight exaggerations in the retelling of mm-hmm. the story. Mm-hmm. So Gimli has to then navigate a imperfect recall you know, or an imperfect knowledge and not knowing what events can be changed and can't be changed, knowing that he he has to do something because he has to be there for a reason. And obviously it has to be saving his his king and his his cousins. But Gimli decides that. Gimli's the only one who decides that. At a certain point, he just has to make sure that they still defeat the dragon because at some point that falls to jeopardy. But it also, you know, it gets Galadriel moving more quickly and more decisively. And it gets uh, Glorfindel in play. It gets decent play uh, in a way that she wasn't originally. And it, it bridges together, you know, the, the, the mountain and the wood in, in a much more <laughs> permanent way, much quicker, which will have impacts down the road. You know, one of the one of the reasons why the Lord of the Rings, the, the War of the Ring at the end is successful is because of the War of the North, where Erebor is the defense keeping the orcs of Doriath up into the north and not allowing them to come and kind of crush at Pelennor Fields. And they do that, they're able to hold because of how Dane rebuilt Erebor after the dragon. But if Thorin is king, Dane doesn't rebuild Erebor, Thorin rebuilds Erebor. And who's to say that Thorin's rebuilding of Erebor, Thorin, who has a history with Thranduil, what's to say that relationship would be good enough that things would happen fast enough? Plus, it's of Dan's line that you get the the return of da- of uh, Durin for the seventh time. You know, not it doesn't come from Thorin; it comes from Dan, from Thorin the Third. So, like, how do we get Dan, uh, or how do we get uh, Durin on the throne of Erebor if it's from? Thorin, you know, like, how does this? And so a lot of how it ended was a kind of compromise between the need for a fix it and the need for these characters to to live, but also the recognition that their living would have fallout and consequences, even though it's a quote unquote good thing, it could have negative effects down the line. Uh, One of which being Bilbo has the ring in Erebor, that's still full of cursed dragon gold. And the enemy is there, and he knows where Bilbo is. You know, can the mountain withstand the enemy coming for the ring? Is that even a thing that they're going to have to do? What are they going to do? You know, they have some foreknowledge, because, you know, uh, Gimli knows that, you know, that there are, I'm sorry, Gundabad. The Gundabad is filling with orcs, right? So he knows that that's happening. And he knows that Sauron is building forces and doing these things and that Gollum is around and what the ring is. But the enemy's back. He knows those things too. How how valuable is this information? You know, what actually enabled them to defeat Sauron at the end? What enabled them to get rid of the ring? Well, it was Frodo and it was more, more than that. It was Sam, right? Who aren't born yet. 
And that only worked because Aragorn was ready to take the throne. Aragorn's nine. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> they mentioned that in your fic at some point. Yeah. Like, uh, he's not ready, guys. <laughs> so, yeah, no, it fixes it, but it creates all of these, these <laughs> problems as a result. So, you know, very much that was kind of what I wanted to do with the time travel. And that is kind of raise these questions and kind of figure out, like, what needs to happen? How and and also to highlight how narrowly some of the winds are. You know, if things happen a fraction to the left or to the right, things could be very different. And sometimes the only difference between success and failure is that one person, you know, willing to carry another one up a volcano, you know, so that you really kind of get that. Plus, I was having a lot of fun kind of weaving together the movies, the book, and the 77 cartoon to create what I was calling the actual events that happened. <laughs> that was a lot of fun. Yeah, no, you could tell. And I think you mentioned that in some of your author's notes, like, hey, yes. I'm sort of piecing these things together mm -hmm. here. So if you see something you recognize, that's where it's from. <laughs> yeah, like, if you go, wait a minute, that was from the movie. It's like, absolutely, that was from the movie. That's where I got it yes. from. Um, also... Uh, uh, there was a lot of discussion, I remember, in fandom at the time about what the different elven accents were, because there was a lot of heard difference in dwarven accents. You know, the Gimli and his father have that kind of Scottish influence, and then you have Thorin, and he doesn't. You know, so where do these different, you know, well, that's obviously Erebor has this accent, and, you know, this <laughs> this kingdom has this accent, and this one has this accent. And one of the, the conversations was the wood elves of Mirkwood have speak. Well, first of all, they speak a different type of elvish than the rest of the elves. And they would therefore have a different accent. Uh, and there was, this was the birth of kind of hick accent Legolas, you know, that kind of like he has a very kind of what is considered, you know, isn't, but what is considered lower class accent, yeah. you know, yeah. because he's from this region. And of course it's absolutely elven, snobbery that gives it this reputation <laughs> of course right but i'm like okay but what does that sound like well obviously it has to sound like that weird pseudo austrian accent that thranduil had in the cartoon <laughs> you know so uh leg uh, so, um the the line that i always would say to myself to kind of get it the the sound of it was what are you doing in these woods which is uh when in the cartoon, when when oh, Thorin, we were starving, fighting spiders. You know, I was like, "What are you doing in my woods?" So that that was Legolas. You know, Gimli, uh, yes. my love, what happened to your beard? <laughs> you know, one of my favorite parts of this whole thing. You know, you put like some pieces of comedy in here, yes. and I loved the part where you're having Gimli think back on Legolas learning how to speak Kazul. You know, but you talk about how he speaks it in this accent that is so like <laughs> convoluted and like you can't even tell what he's saying. You know, like Gimli's the only one that knows what he's saying because the accent is so bad. So and bad. I sat there and just laughed at that for like a good five minutes because I was like, yeah, I can hear it. Like this horrible accent. And there he is trying to communicate in Kudzul. And it's just, it was the funniest thing. I, lo <laughs> I loved that. I absolutely love that. And I really do love the theme that you mentioned earlier about 
when you change certain events, you don't know what the consequence of that is going to be. And so I felt like coming away from this, one of the themes here really was just these characters having to face, especially Gimli and Legolas, having to face again uncertainty with valor and courage because they have this hope and this faith that it's all going to work out because they've seen it and they've been there But there's that uncertainty of like, we really don't know how this is going to shake out a second time. We hope that it's going to go well, (laughs) but there's still adversity here and there's still a lot of uncertainty. And what do you do with that? And I really felt like they kind of had to sit there with that and face that again for a second time. Absolutely. There's a moment, um, I think where it's right. I think it's right around when they first reunite where or it's, it's whenever they realize that the enemy has to have also returned. And Legolas has this kind of moment of, like, we just did this. We just did this. We can't do this again. And they have to then, yeah, no, the, this thing, the most horrifying, horrible thing that they ever had to live through, they got to do it again. Yeah. Oh, my God. You know? Traumatizing, actually, Absol- if you think absolutely. about it. Absolutely. Yes. No, they have to... You know, Tolkien has said again and again that the books aren't a corollary for World War One, but it's absolutely inspired by it. Like, there's no way something so traumatic and so affecting could not have impacted the writing of this book, especially because he started writing it in the trenches, you know, and it's very much, you know, telling a World War One veteran that he has to go back into the trenches. It's very much that. And it's Thank Edward that I have you here, you know, with me, that it's the two of us against this and not just me alone. Yeah. Well, and, you know, I loved that you weaved in the romance between those two to sort of counterbalance that darkness, because um, there were a couple of different spots in this fic that were my favorite. I'm going to go into like my favorite for a second here, and then I'll ask you what yours was. But there was a part in there where I think it's... Uh, now I can't remember who was talking. It was either like, it was either Legos or it was Gimli. And they're talking about how they found each other. They found that bond in, with each other during the events of Lord of the Rings. And they're talking about what a bright spot that was and how badly they needed that during those dark times because it was that one bright spot that kind of got them through them. You know, Mm -hmm. and so like, like you said, them having that again, as they're forced to go back and deal with it again, was just invaluable. And I'm, I'm trying to pull up my notes here, because I love to copy and paste things. I loved the most, I think, that conversation that Gimli's father is having with Legolas, you know, and he goes like, you know, you love my son, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) And then he goes, uh, we dwarves only love once, and I still know my son well enough to know that he has lost his heart to love for you. I ask again, you love my son, right? And then Gimli watches to see what Legolas is going to say, you know, and he, oh my God, his response like killed me in the best way possible because he goes, um, Already we are bound, everlasting and eternal in the manner of elven bonds. I have followed him through time and death itself to stand once more with him. I will follow him wherever he goes, through the end of this world and into the next. I love your son, glowing son of growing with all of me. And that just, like, (laughs) killed me. It was so... (laughs) Oh, my God. I died. 
It was so good. <laughs> that was absolutely one of those times where I remember writing, like, just with this grin on my face, like, ha! Because they were, like, ha! Because every once in a while, when I'm writing, like, the dialogue, like, it, it just kind of pops into your mind, like, fully formed. And I think I was even writing, like, an earlier part of that, and I, like, skipped down as I had to write out what he says, because the, the phrasing of it hit right. It just kind of gotcha. But even though just, like, yeah. <laughs> reading, it, reading it here just now, I'm like, even I'm getting chills, and I'm like, I wrote the thing. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it was my favorite. When I read oh, that, I was absolutely. like, oh, my God. So that was my favorite line of the whole oh, thing, where I was just like, oh, my God. So I got I to gotta know, what was yours from the oh. whole thing? I uh, I don't know. I, I know, don't know. I know. It's so I'm asking big. you to pick like your favorite child so at this big. point. I and know. I, <laughs> I can't like I don't I I can't tell you I think what my favorite line was specifically. There are, there are a couple that pop up and it, depending on the time of day like it 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 changes. But I absolutely like the the only dialogue part that I can really focus in on is the moment where Legolas and Gimli meet for the first ah, yes. time and <laughs> it's it's there's so, it's like it's you it's you where's your beard <laughs> you and it's it's because it's legolas is just so happy his heart is here in front of him he looks weird but he's here <laughs> and Gimli is just like you had to mention the beard i have been I subconscious know. about this you he's so offended it. yeah he's, he's like, like, like grown in just... yet. oh that's right you would be a child hmm, yeah he's just a baby all right <laughs> But no, there there are several parts of it that I could count as kind of favorite parts. That that's the first one that always pops into mind. But um, when Dan and Galadriel meet for the first time, when Dan is just standing buck naked in the middle of camp, <laughs> and that was uh, so funny, <laughs> Legolas is laughing his ass off in the background because he's just like, "Of course he is," and Galadriel comes up and makes a dick joke. Like, first of all, the amount of work I had to put in to make that. First of all, that situation happened. And secondly, to have that be somewhat in character. And I did it. But, like, that's a great moment when you have Thorin come holding Gimli by the hair and finds the marriage braid. And that's, you know, dramatic scene. But also Philly braiding Legolas's hair because he's accepted him. And then writing the, the scene between Gimli and Thranduil, the dinner scene. Where Gimli's like, oh, oh, he crazy. Uh, that was fun to write. But also the moment where Thorin's madness breaks and Philly finds him with the crown just kind of thrown in the corner and they have to, Thorin has to face everything. His heir, his sister's son, and kind of face him and go like, I failed. You know, like that's such a, it's such a moment, but it's also the first time that we see the kind of king that Philly will be. And I just like, like, I, I finished that and I'm like, how did I, like, I did this. How did I do this? this is a, this is whew, a lot. There was, there was a lot of this that when I finished it, I was like, ha, that's awesome. And then think back of it. I'm like, how did I ever think of that? That was good. You know, not to like toot my own horn, but like to be surprised by what I'm able to come up with that really resonate with people, you know, as I, I mentioned, the amount of comments that I still get on this fic. I get kudos. Uh, I get the kudos email. Uh, I get one every day. I've written enough fics and some of them have, have been thankfully big enough that I still get that. 
kind of all the time. There's always one for comes around again. And that's this fic ended in what, 2016, something like that. Yeah. Yeah. So all this time later, all this time, I'm still getting I'm getting comments like, I just found this, or I started reading this and then, you know, stopped and just came back to it, realized it was finished. I got a couple that were like, this really got me through the pandemic. You know, when the pandemic first hit, I got I, I got a, a kind of a small resurgence because people were reading fanfic for comfort. And they're like, thank you so much. I read it in three days. A lot of, I read this in like three days. I didn't sleep. I was up till four. And I'm like, oh, no. Like, okay, I've been there. I've done this. I have lost sleep over fic many times. But I'm also here now older, like, no, 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 sleep. The fic will be there in the morning. Please sleep. <laughs> Hydrate. Drink your water. This is a long one. Drink. It's okay. You're okay. <laughs> yeah. Take some meal breaks, y'all. <laughs> but I get a lot of people thanking me uh, for, for writing it. I get a lot of this was so good. This was, I've gotten a lot that were like, this was incredibly meaningful. This was so well written. It was brilliant masterpiece. You're such a good writer. And like, every time I get it, like, I will cry. I absolutely, like, I tear up because... I know what it's like to be moved by what I read. And I know what it's like to be captivated and to be moved by, by a fan fiction. It's, and especially back, you know, way back when, when it was something that people didn't talk about, but to have this kind of worldview changing moment and then not be able to tell anyone about it. You know, it was so hard. So whenever somebody reaches out to me and says like, I, I was moved by this. I just like, I know what that feels like. And I, there were a couple where I've had to like read it and put it down and like compose myself before I come back. And like, what do you, what do you say in response when somebody's like, you, you have saved my life. I had, I got one that was like, life was really shitty, like really shitty, really dark. And I got through it because I was reading your fic. Oh, damn. Like, how do you respond to that? Like, I am so like, first of all, thank goodness the fic was there for you to read to keep you here first of all and second of all i did that me playing with my imaginary friends online i did that you know so like it's it's very like that's what i'm saying before like part of the thing that i love about fandom is the fact that it's so counterculture and people finding and exploring that's the other side of it you know is the people reading and seeing themselves and seeing value and finding literature really you know contemporary and what people should be getting from literature which is an emotional connection yes these words and these stories have the power to change us at a deep deep level and i do think that some of that is the source material like the lord of the rings itself lends itself to this kind of storytelling and star wars lends itself to this kind of epic world sweeping operatic kind of writing but you can absolutely find it in other fandoms as well absolutely you find it kind of everywhere you look if you know where to look you do you do i think i'm not sure why but for me some of my most life-changing moments with fan fiction did come out of lord of the rings and especially the hobbit i'm not sure why it may have just been at a time in my life where things were really shitty and that's just happens to be what i was reading at the time but, I, you know, I tell people sometimes, you know, like it was The Hobbit. It was you guys, you know, that just changed me on this deep molecular level in so many ways. Thank you all for that. Because, yeah, it's it's funny because 
sometimes I hear from fan fiction writers who are like, oh, you know, I wrote something and it didn't get any, you know, traction or response. And, you know, that sucks. But what they don't realize is that if it's up on AO3, it's up on AO3 until you mm-hmm. take it down. And you have no idea who is going to find that story seven right. years from now mm-hmm. at a time when they are desperate for something to keep them here and grounded. And yes. you have no idea if that's going to be your story. Absolutely. So keep it up and keep Absolutely. writing because you have no idea who you're going to touch. One of the things that AO3, one of the features AO3 has that I absolutely love and am in favor of is the orphan feature, where you can decide to disconnect a fic from your account. They will still host it, but it won't be linked back to your pseudonym anymore. And there have been one or two that over the years that I've I've orphaned smaller, smaller works. But, you know, it keeps it there. It keeps it in the record and it keeps it available for other people. And I like I never understood people who I never understood taking down a fic, you know, like I understand like taking it down for renovations and then reposting it, but like just taking it down, I would much rather personally orphan though. Obviously I can't speak for other people. They have their reasons, but it always makes me feel so sad when a fic that I like, especially, or that I was waiting or like wanted to read, but just had gotten around to yet. Like it all of a sudden it disappears, you know? And it's like, Oh no. And I think, one of the things that with modern fandom is that there's a lot more things that I've seen recently, you know, is that there's been a shift from commenting culture to kudos, right? So you, you're finding a lot less comments, but a lot more kudos on, on a fic because like the, the live journal way of encouraging was to comment. And that has changed recently. I think social media has a lot to do with that. It's considered less, appropriate to converse with the author as opposed to like the kudos button is more like a, is considered more akin to a like button. So you get less comments kind of overall, but you're starting to see a little bit of entitlement creep out in some spaces, but I've seen screenshots of, of other fic that have gotten comments that are, you shouldn't have written it this way, you know, or like, that's great, but that's not my headcanon for this character's sexuality, you know, or, you know, obviously, uh, Derek is a bottom, you know, kind of, kind of thing. And it's like, well, that's not how I wrote him. So write your own fic, you know, it's like, it's very much the, the don't like, don't read, like, don't like, don't read, curate your own experience, you know, comment on, like, you comment on, as encouragement, right? And you don't comment on something that, or suppose you can't, you don't comment on something that hasn't been, that isn't easy to fix. And I can't tell you how frustrating it is to, to post something like, I have a very hard time with, uh, typos and like small, like editing things. It's not something that I do well. That's not where my strengths lie in writing. So I usually work with a beta, but occasionally I post things without, without a beta reader. And the first comments are always, hey, you misspelled this, or this was a typo, or you said the, but I think you meant to say our, you know, or something like that. And it's like, or you left an author's note or an editing note. And I'm like, yeah, I'm sure I did. Like, but did you like it? <laughs> you know, so, you know, we, we've seen a, a shift, I think, a little bit 
We have. But, you know, for those of us who uh, still remember the old ways, we still like to leave comments. And uh, and those can just be so meaningful to, to Absolutely. people who spend so much time and um, emotional labor yes. writing these things. Yes. So I've, I'm always so glad when I hear about writers who still get comments on stuff, even years and years later. I do want to switch here sure. gears. We've been talking about Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit, but um, I wanted to talk about a second fig of yours, okay. which is in a completely different fandom. So we're going <laughs> to switch gears here, folks. We're going to talk about Star Wars here right. for a little while, um, which is another fandom that I have yet to approach. This is the first time we're talking about it. Okay. on FFM. It's one of those fandoms where I love Star Wars. I grew up, like, you know, mm-hmm. watching the Star Wars movies as a kid over and over and over and all that. I never really got into the Star Wars fan fiction scene. I will mm-hmm. state that up front, that that was just never something that I did. But I love Star Wars. I've just heard through the grapevine that Star Wars fandom is a little bit crazy. Oh, um, yeah. <laughs> so some of this conversation might get a little bit crazy, but we're going to yes. go there. The fic that we're doing for the Star Wars, I believe it's a one shot. It's called um, There Is No Death, which, oh, my God, it was so gorgeous. Uh, But before we touch on that, I did want to get your thoughts on Obi-Wan Kenobi. The reason being is because There Is No Death is sort of this, I don't want to call it a prequel, but it's connected, in other words, to, yeah, what's going on with Obi-Wan Kenobi and the show. So I wanted to get your initial thoughts on the Disney Plus Obi-Wan Kenobi show before we dive into the fan fiction. Well, first things first, I loved it. Like, I this might be, you know, this might be a controversial statement, but I really enjoyed it. And I felt like in terms of tone, it was much closer to like The Mandalorian, which felt more like the original trilogy than kind of some of the other original trilogy or that Rebellion era tie-ins that they'd done. I admit I never saw Solo, so I I can't speak to that one. But like Rogue One was another one that had that kind of feel to it. It felt like a rebellion. You know, uh, I saw it heard that, you know, the original trilogy is also a war movie or it has elements of a war movie in it. And these, some of the, other contemporary works that are coming out of Disney now remember that and deal with that. And those tend to feel more like Star Wars. So a lot of what they did with it, you know, one of the things I loved about it was the fact that it looked at the Jedi and really like looked directly at the audience and said, Jedi help people, period. Jedi will get caught because they help people, because Jedi help people, Jedi help people, because there's been a lot of conversation about, you know, how culpable was the Jedi Order in the fall of the Republic and the fall of Anakin Skywalker. And actually the Jedi were evil. Look, they twisted Anakin, you know, and then you have Anakin Skywalker himself in Kenobi saying, you didn't fail me. I did this. This is my, my failing. You know, I caused this. And first of all, Frickin' hats off to Hayden for his performance in that whole fight scene. Because, you know, this was Darth Vader. There there he is. Darth Vader. Like, we all remember from childhood, that's Darth Vader. And it really tied him to the original, the prequel trilogy and the way Hayden played Anakin in a way that kind of connected some dots. 
I'd heard it said that the kind of the Clone Wars version of Obi-Wan and Anakin that we get, the cartoon, is more what people, like people resonated with it more. Well, they had more time with them, one, and he was, you know, written slightly differently, had different a different editor. You know, I do think that the prequel trilogies, especially the second two movies, suffered from, I don't want to say a lack of editing, but I do think that if there would have been, like, there was something in the editing process that could have been tweaked to kind of make it a little bit smoother. I don't know, because, like, everyone worked very hard, and the more you go back and look, the more you could see just how tight those movies can actually be. It doesn't change the fact that, like, the f- confrontation, the final scene over the lava pit is hard to listen to, because there's something about the sound of it that seems off, like the audio mixing. They could have spent a little bit more time on it, but that's neither here nor there. As a result of that, I do think that people kind of, certain fans have kind of clicked onto the Clone Wars as the main kind of past that we see of them. And Kenobi came from the movies. You know, it had some of the Clone Wars stuff in it, but it was really more of a connection between film and film. And I think some of the disappointment that fans had in the Kenobi series is that Obi-Wan, he wasn't General Kenobi. He was never General Kenobi. At no point in Kenobi was he General Kenobi. He was occasionally Knight Kenobi, and, you know, at fighting Anakin, he became Master Kenobi. But he wasn't General Kenobi. And I do think that that's kind of part of the root of that, root of the problem, is the the lack of general there. Because, you know... In the the weeks leading up to what people wanted out of this, there was like Camp A, which was we want to see more Clone Wars, but with Ewan McGregor and Hayden Christensen. And B, which was I want sad Obi-Wan Kenobi hours in the desert. And we got mostly sad Obi-Wan Kenobi hours in the desert with added baby Leia. You know, which I didn't see coming. And I absolutely loved it. I think she did an amazing job. And I think that also pointed directly at the audience and went, Leia is a Skywalker. Leia has the Force. Stop trying to take this from her. I don't think that was received very well by some some of the fandom. It was, a you know, could be read as a call out. And that's not, not comfortable because you know, one of the things we were talking about before was the difference between transformative fan culture, which is where fan fiction lives, and fan edits, and collective fan culture. And the popular eye of Star Wars, the well-known, the mostly gen Star Wars culture, fan culture, is collective. And it's literally collective, collecting Star Wars memorabilia and merchandise and books and uh, tidbits of information and, and you know, curating w- Wikipedia and all of that. But it's very much, how much do I have? How much do I know? You know, do I know the name of the little creature that sits on Jabba's shoulder? And I was like, well, yeah, that's delicious. <laughs> right. Everyone knows his name. You know, yeah, it's fact collecting, right? It's fact collecting, yes. And when you collect, when you hold things, when, when your, your status, so to speak, as a fan is determined by how much you have, you know, it's very much, uh, it, it gets entwined with your identity in a way that's very still. You know, it's very, very firm, very, very set. 
And anything that could change that or challenge that feels like a threat. But if your fandom experience is, oh, I like this thing, let's play with it. <laughs> you know, it's much more transformative in nature. So I'm not saying necessarily that the, the split over Kenobi was based along these lines, but I do think that the Kenobi series focused more on the trauma of war, the trauma of surviving a genocide, the trauma of losing the other half of yourself, like Obi-Wan Kenobi and Anakin Skywalker and Anakin Skywalker and Obi-Wan Kenobi. Like, there's a reason why that's a very popular ship, A. Not one of mine, but it is, it is a very popular ship. But they were, they were brothers. They were connected, you know, and then all of a sudden that's lost. And also getting from Clone Wars to A New Hope. You know, how do you get from Ewan McGregor, you were the chosen one, to only a master of evil, Darth? Like, how do you get there? And the show said, by facing it, by having this not be the first time they meet, by having Obi-Wan, by giving him space to grieve and to process and to learn the lessons that Qui-Gon still has for him. Plus, I think there was a lot of like, we're going to see baby Luke on Tatooine. And we did. And, you know, I personally think that Luke should have done more than run away and hit his head because Luke Skywalker is actually my favorite character. I love Leia. I love Obi-Wan. Luke's, Luke's my boy. Luke's always been my boy. But it also it, it makes perfect sense that that's actually what happened. And it allowed for Baru to have her shotgun moment, you know, like no one's going to get my boy. Chink, chink. But... Yeah, it very much gave Obi-Wan Kenobi an interior and explored it and allowed him to have emotions on screen. And for someone who had been characterized up at this point to be very buttoned up and very reserved about his emotions, it was very different. But yeah, no, he breaks. <laughs> he breaks all the way down and is then rebuilt. But what we're seeing is the breaking. We're not getting General Kenobi. General Kenobi doesn't exist anymore. He's Obi-Wan Kenobi. He's maybe Master Kenobi, depending on who you talk to. Yeah. And I was going to bring this up later, but I think I'll do it now instead, as sure. since we're talking about it. But it was very interesting watching this show and then speaking to my family members about it. And I won't go into too much detail about what these conversations were about, but I spoke to several family members. I should probably state that these are, are men who I was talking to about Obi-Wan Kenobi series. And the people that I spoke with were all very upset about Obi-Wan Kenobi, the show, you know, very upset. And I was very fascinated by that. So I would sort of poke at that and ask like, okay, why? What's so upsetting about this to you? And what I heard back was that they were very upset because they felt like Kenobi was very OOC here in this series to them, you know, according to them and what they expected to see in this series. And they said, he's weak and he's OOC and we don't like that. But these are also the same people in my life who like movies with Sylvester Stallone and Arnold Schwarzenegger. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, no, like Walker, wrong. Texas Ranger. Predator you know? is a gem. 
But yeah, but, yeah. Well, the reason but, I bring that up is because, like, it seems like there are certain individuals who really love to see those movies where the hero glides in and kicks ass, and you know, violence is the answer to all of our problems, and I will fix it because I'm strong and I'm stronger than the other guy. You know. <laughs> yeah, they love to watch Rambo: First Blood and completely fail to remember that it is a very vocal criticism of the way. Vietnam veterans were treated when they returned to the country. <laughs> right, right. They they watch Fight Club and fall in love with Tyler Durden. Right. They're there for the ass kicking, pretty yeah. much. Because they feel connected to that somehow. You know what I mean? It was a power fantasy. Yeah, it was this very strange power fantasy. And it made me think, because one of the people that I was talking to about this who has this opinion on LB1 Kenobi, he's older, you know, he's in his late seventies, and he grew up in a culture that was very machismo. He grew up in a culture where, as a man, you cannot show emotion. You cannot admit that you're failing. You cannot talk about traumatic events that happened to you. And you just pull yourself up by your bootstrap, one foot in front of the other, and you never talk about this shit. And I felt like what these people were confronted with when they were watching Obi-Wan Kenobi was a man who was very human. Yes. Going through something very emotional and very human. Yes. And on the one hand, you could look at that, I guess, and say, oh, he's weak. He's showing emotion. He's, you know, traumatized and sad because that is a very sad thing to go through grief. And no wonder he's grieving. Right. Yeah. No wonder. Um, but it was just very interesting to me that these individuals I spoke to were very uncomfortable with that, that they did not want to see a story about a man dealing with his emotional problems in that way. And I thought that that was very fascinating and very telling. What does that <laughs> say about our culture? Uh, yeah. Especially, you know, when it comes to ideas like masculinity and the way that we deal with emotions and what it means to be a man. Absolutely. And no, I think you're, I think you, you hit it kind of nail on the head is that, you know, the narrative toxic masculinity says you must be strong at all costs. And strength is this. Strength is power. Strength is uh, not showing emotion. Strength is XYZ. Which, the fact that they look at Darth Vader and go, he's strong. And they're like, yeah, but Darth Vader is ruled by emotion. So there's some disconnect there. He's also ruled by <laughs> right. violence. But, <laughs> yes. you know. But there's, that's, that's, that's what toxic masculinity says. And people who have dealt with their own and, and you know, moved away from it, or people who weren't raised in, in toxic masculine cultures or, or were kept outside of that because, you know, raised in a, in a culture with toxic masculinity, but we're not considered masculine, you know, look at this and go, there is, you know, there is more strength in breaking and rebuilding because it is rebuilding is so much harder to do. It's so hard to do. So to see the cracks and to see the break and to see to see Obi-Wan crack and emerge stronger and more sure of himself and more of a master of himself in the force than he ever was before, that's empowering. That is looking at you and saying, you can crack. It's okay. But you keep going. And to keep going after, after your world has ended? Whew. But when we talk about like masculine and feminine storytelling, right? And again, caveats. 
we're talking kind of like academically here, and these are kind of academic uh, ideas that have been passed down, that the the feminine storytelling, right, the 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 feminine side of it is we're much more expected to break. And so many more of our stories are focused around how to rebuild when it all falls apart, because so many of us have had to deal with our world falling apart some way or another, for whatever reason, you know, how many, how many of us out here who aren't, and I'm going to broaden it, who aren't part of that kind of cis straight white male, Protestant, Christian, etc., you know, part, part of that demographic, how many of us have had our world fall apart and we've had to rebuild or have had to look at ourselves and kind of reconstruct our identity out of the rubble of something else because we're not part of this. And so that construction has to fall before we rebuild. You know, it's a very familiar storyline. So it's much more, you know, part of it. And I think it's very telling that the creative team, there was, I think it was a female director, and I think that, part, first of all, that's why this particular storyline was as told as well as it was, because you tend to see those stories, not always, but you tend to see those stories more when you get uh, women storytellers. They tend to focus, there is more of a focus on emotion um, as a, like an emotional crux. Not always, but, but you do see it more. And a lot of fan fiction, right? Uh, it's not only women writing fanfic, but you know, they've done the demographics, right? It is largely been women and largely queer, you know, writing these stories. Kenobi felt more like something I would see in a fanfic than it did about something in Star Wars. And I think that's, I think that's ultimately where I'm going with it. It looked like a fanfic in certain places and in, in the best way possible. It looked like somebody looking at it and filling in the gaps, which Rogue One also felt like that. You know, because that's what happened. A fan wrote in, it was like, oh, here's a here's a, a, a gap that we didn't show. So I'm going to write what happened. You know, Kenobi, here's the gap. We're going to write what happened. Here you go. You know, that's that's fanfic. That's one of the things that fanfiction does. So I think that absolutely had something to do with it. You know, they're going more in this direction. It wasn't the direction that they wanted, you know, and it didn't match this image of Kenobi as... General Kenobi, the negotiator, because that's not who he was anymore, you know, and somewhere in fandom, in fandom spaces, I saw a lot of, again, I saw a lot of prediction beforehand of what they wanted and what they wanted was Clone Wars Part 2. And that's not what they got. No, this was the story of Kenobi the man. Kenobi the man, exactly. And first of all, what a man. Uh, <laughs> I, I was so happy to see you and McGregor back to take on. He did such a good job. And I think the second episode where he shows up on the planet where Leia was taken, you get two, you get a couple of wonderful things that let me, like, that was when I watching it was like, I love everything about this. This and the sad repetition of him, his daily life cutting up the meat. It was when he saw the Clone Wars soldier panhandling. And I went, okay, they're going to deal with this as, you know, the aftermath of war. Great. And when he went to fight, when he got caught and, you know, he's been kind of pathetic Kenobi, quote unquote, and they capture him and his response is to just kick their asses, you know, without his lightsaber, without use of the force. He just beats him up. 
I'm like, yeah, yes, yes, because that is at at his core. Who is Obi Wan Kenobi? You know, Obi Wan Kenobi is, you know, he's a man of contradictions, but he is absolutely, you know, he's going to do what he needs to do because he needs to do it. You know, but he's going to do it his way, and at the moment, his way is no lightsaber. And then Leia, Leia coming in with a steel chair. <laughs> it was delightful. It's like, yeah, no, that's Anakin's kid. That's no, that's Padme's kid. Because people, people have made the joke like, well, oh, we really see Anakin. I'm like, yeah, like Padme wouldn't be there with the chair the same way. We've seen her. She's just as nuts. But yeah, no, I liked it. My wife had had uh, foot surgery um, at the time. She's, she's fine, but she was laid up on the couch while this was airing. So we were actually watching it together. And at the end of it, I was like, ha? Huh? And she's like, eh. And I went, eh. You know, because I was there like, ha, yes, this, that's, this is, this is Kenobi. And if you've read There's No Death, you can, I think, maybe see why I like the show so much. And her response to it was, yeah, it was good, but it was kind of slow. So like, okay. So yeah, no pacing. Like, could there have been more? Could there have been uh, another episode or two? Yes. Did did I find it weird that they went here? Yes. Would I have liked more with Luke? Yes. But the thing that is sticking in people's craw about his characterization, that's not where I am. I think they did a great job with that. It's just a very interesting. And I agree with you. I feel like there could have been a different way to tell the stories in certain parts. You know, I did talk to my brother and after a lot of grumbling on his part, he admitted, you know, I think I would have been okay with this type of story if they just would have led up to it a little bit better in the first episode, because it was very hard for him to connect the grief and the loss to what we saw in that first scene or that first episode of Kenobi. And he's like, I really needed more of a lead up, just kind of showing, you know, or sort of retelling and reminding us like where he was, you know, emotionally when it sort of opens up. And I was like, oh, okay, I can kind of see that, I guess. We kind of got that with the kind of recap of the Revenge of the Sith. Like, we got the recap of, of Order 66, which sets up Reva and, and all of that, but also kind of reminds you, okay, this is where we are. He just lost everything and everyone he ever knew and loved. Exactly. Go. Exactly. Like, yeah, I didn't feel like I needed it, but apparently, yeah. So some people, so I don't know. I It could have been, you know, done a little bit differently here and there. But yeah. overall, I felt like when I got to the end of it, I felt like, okay, I know what they were trying to do here. And it did. It did feel very much like the kind of story that we would want to see in this community as transformative fandom people, yes. you know? Yes. And so, yeah, for that reason, it was phenomenal. But of course, I want to talk about your fan fiction okay. kind of dealing with this era <laughs> here because, like, it's so good. Oh, my God. Again, Thank it's you. called There Is No Death. I think I mentioned in my notes to you when I sent this over that I kind of had to catch my breath a little bit after I read this because I was just like, oh, my gosh, like everything that like all of the thoughts that I've been having over the last couple months about Obi-Wan Kenobi, the show sort of culminated here in this <laughs> fan fiction. And I felt so validated like after I finished it. And it was just it was amazing. It was lovely. I loved everything about it. The first word that came to mind after I was all done with it was the word mystical, which is kind of an odd word, I think, to apply <laughs> to fan fiction. <laughs> I don't see that aspect applied very often to fan fiction, just not the ones that I read on a regular basis. But I was fascinated by it. I loved it. So I was hoping that you could tell us what this fan fiction is about. 
And then I kind of wanted to explore some of the conversations that go on in this fan fiction between Obi-Wan Kenobi and Qui-Gon Jinn. So first of all, I think mystical is a good word for it because ultimately that's kind of where I, where I ended up. It's certainly where I spent the most time. I want to preface this by kind of talking about how this fic happened. So this fic was part of the Kyobi zine, uh, Passion and Serenity, that came out recently. And I initially had no... First of all, I didn't know the zine was happening. Like, I had no intention of writing for it. It was kind of during the first year of the pandemic. And I... Like, that hit hard. Like, the writing stopped when the pandemic hit. First, because transitioning to online teaching and then just the stress of it a lot of my extra reserves for writing just kind of disappeared because I was in, you know, crisis mode, survival mode. And then I got a message uh, on Tumblr, actually saying basically that here I have the uh, actually in my notes, I actually copied and pasted the, the message that I got that this isn't the full thing. But part of it was uh, it was from a Saner on the inside who was part of the production of the zine saying that they were making the zine and that they wanted me to submit that, quote, I wanted to extend a personal invitation to you on behalf of the planning committee for the Kyobi zine we are organizing. Your works and snippets are considered to be a staple in the fandom for many shippers, and we were also longtime admirers. We would really love to have any kind of contribution from you turned into a hard copy to keep on our shelves. And when I tell you that I cried when I read that, I was at my sister-in-law's. She was having a barbecue. It was like one of the first times that we had left our house during all of this. And it was only because they also hadn't left their house. And we were all in like isolation, separate but together. And I had to like leave the room because we were just sitting at the dining room table talking. And I happened to look down and see a notification on my phone. And I read it and I had to step away because it was so like, first of all, I'm a staple. What? What are you talking about? I'm not a staple. It's not every day somebody tells you that, right? I said, because I'm also, you know, like, well, I'm I'm known for Lord of the Rings fix. I'm just paying attention to my Star Wars stuff. But obviously, you know, I think I was already writing Old Man Luke by that point. So, like, I had no excuse. I just, it hadn't occurred to me because I was of in the position of being fans of other people's writing. So it never occurs to me that people are fans, fans of mine because obviously I'm here as a fan. But I was thought about it and I thought about it and I had no idea what I would possibly write. Like the, when I tell you that I was in the desert, I was in the desert, but I said, yes, I said, I, I am honored and I would love to be a part of this. I'll come up with a pitch and I'll send it because you had to let people know kind of what, what you were thinking of. And the only thing I could think of was actually the Kenobi series that was coming out because this was before the series was there. I think we had gotten maybe the teaser trailer had come out by this point. And I said, I want to write my version. What would I want to see of sad Obi-Wan Kenobi hours in the desert? And that's kind of where this, where this started. And I was thinking about it. And I was thinking about it. And it started off with a bit of dialogue that was ultimately their reunion. And I actually, I have the pitch that I actually sent to them. I want to read it in a moment because I, I think it kind of encapsulates it perfectly, but it was this moment between the two of them. And then I went, okay, what I want this to be is the progression of Obi-Wan Kenobi learning how to hear Qui-Gon again to learn the lessons that he needs to learn to become 
the Obi-Wan Kenobi that we see in the original trilogy. So in thinking about that, and trying to think about like, what, what does he need to learn? And I had the idea of using the Jedi code to kind of be the structure where each lesson that he learned would be under a different tenant of the order. So as he moves through the tenants, he is getting closer and closer to this kind of new understanding and new mastery. And like kind of as I was doing this was kind of relearning how to write fanfic. So because I wrote this, I was able to first of all write the Our Flag Means Death fanfic at the beginning and was able to start writing kind of in general again. So this kind of really kickstarted my return to, to writing in general. But it's very much, I said here, I have my little script here that I so far off of, but I said, each moment is Obi-Wan relearning what the code is teaching in the aftermath of such incredible loss. He's reconnecting with the Force until he becomes one with the Force, and his connection to Qui-Gon is part of that, healing the past for the future. So here is my original pitch for this fic. Pitch, Obi-Wan on Tatooine, visited by ghosts. Longer pitch. Obi-Wan, heart sore and tired from an unwinnable war, finds himself washed up on Tatooine. It's a familiar story for his life, losing everything and having to start over, but he's never lost this much before. You have not lost everything. An echo of a voice, not heard but known, as he knew his own heart, broken and bleeding as it was. Obi-Wan. Qui-Gon, he says aloud, his voice cracking in the dry desert air. I am here. You have much to learn. It startled a laugh from him, and if Qui-Gon had taken physical form before him, Obi-Wan would have broken that arrogant bastard's nose. Again. Force, but he missed him. And that was the original pitch. So that bit is what I sent. And I'm like, okay, so what I need is to show Obi-Wan break, or dealing with the broken, and then as he's kind of piecing back together with the idea that the loss and the, the trauma of 66 kind of disconnected him from the Force. Not completely, but he's not running on all cylinders. He's shut down to kind of the barest possible minimum. Yeah, he's numb. Exactly, exactly. He's numb. He's numbed to it, and he's starting to kind of reconnect with the Force, with himself, through lessons with his master, which are, you know, how he learned the Force in the first place. Oh, I loved it. I loved it because to me, and maybe this is why it felt so mystical, is because like there are traditions out there that sort of have this setup of like a student and a master, right? Yeah. And as the student, you're kind of learning these <laughs> mystical lessons from the master. And I have in my life had experiences where grief numbs me to the point where I forget all of the lessons. I forget how to connect to the greater, whatever you want to call it, universe, oneness, yep. like whatever you want to call it. And so like, I felt like you were telling that story here through the eyes of Obi-Wan Kenobi, where, he, you know, the force for them is sort of like the key that we learn about in other cultures. It's this force and we have equivalent words for that non-Star Wars words in many cultures here on Earth that I very much ascribe to. I think it's kind of a real thing. And so, you know, him not being able to connect with the Force, I was like, well, of course he's not. 
he's traumatized and he's sad and he's grieving and you're just so numb after something like that happens. And so you do have to have this rebuilding part of your life where you have to decide what are you going to do now? What do you do with this? You know? And sometimes you do need to go back to the very basics. And I love how a Kwai Kwan Jin appears when he needs him the most and says, okay, we're going to take you through these lessons. And there were two parts of this fic that I was absolutely fascinated with. And I really wanted to get your insight on like what you were thinking, because I have heard these conversations before in very new agey terms outside of fandom. And I'm fascinated. I have to know <laughs> what you meant by this. Okay. So okay. the first one was, there's this conversation between Kenobi and Qui-Gon about time not being real. And bells went off on my head. And I was like, <laughs> I have heard Earthmasters talk about that concept having nothing to do with Star Wars. So I was All like, right. okay, what is Qui-Gon talking about there? And then there was a second part where he's talking about how there is no such thing as reality. And that yes. dichotomy between perception and chaos. Again, these are concepts I have heard in like new age spaces that I am absolutely just so drawn to. So if you could break down those two conversations for us a little bit and kind of tell us sure. what you meant. What does Qui-Gon mean when he was talking about no time and no reality? That's amazing. There are a couple of things that were kind of coming to together for these conversations. And one is... For all of the conversations that they have where they're trying to figure out the force, a lot of it was me trying to, first of all, give my kind of thesis on what the force is and how the force works, because we don't actually know. We have a couple of kind of mystical lines over the course of the original trilogy. We have Obi-Wan's comment on, from a certain point of view, we have Yoda's there is no try, you know. The one that always stuck with me was the luminous beings, are we not this crude matter? Judge me by my size. You do not, and you should not, you know. The idea that size doesn't matter, right? So that led in my reading of fanfic and my writing of fanfic to the idea that Luke has a different perception of the Force than the rest of the Jedi Order. Not just by virtue of being Anakin's son and therefore, you know, considered like a level of being, like the demigod of the Force, if you want to talk about it that way, you know. If, if you subscribe to the belief that Anakin is, you know, part Force himself, the Chosen One, the son of the Chosen One, right? It's the fact that he got his lessons from Obi-Wan and Yoda after Obi-Wan and Yoda learned how to connect to the Force in such a way that they would become one with the Force upon their death. So the extra lessons that were taught to them, that were not taught to the Order, were taught to Luke. Luke's understanding of the Force is more whole, more, I don't say more unique, but he doesn't, nowhere in the original trilogy do you have the, div the divisions of the Force, the living Force, the unified Force, the cosmic Force, it's just the Force. So that really kind of gets to the whole perception thing. What is the truth about the Force? Well, that depends on how you're looking at it, doesn't it? You know, and that's kind of where I was, that was my like in 
ripe to kind of dig through because there was a lot of meta too at the time about what the force was and how the force works and you know the force as, a, as an ocean where the light side where it's all chaos but the light side is up here in the shallows and the dark side is down in the Marianas Trench you know and that kind of that kind of thing and you know the idea that Anakin by virtue of having the most midichlorians ever right can hear more of the force than than anyone else and therefore Luke can hear more of the force than perhaps Obi-Wan or, or Yoda. But it's possible that Obi-Wan and Yoda have this, have since learned how to, to hear it by virtue of these lessons. So there's a lot of that kind of flying around. But specifically the time not being real, like I said, this was written mid-pandemic. And I say mid like it's not still going, but mid-lockdown, where everyone was looking around and saying, time doesn't feel real anymore. You know, I am locked in my house. It is the same thing every day, and I have no sense of time. And it was around this point that I realized that I am time blind. I have self-diagnosed at this point. I'm in the process, but I have ADHD, and I have been kind of over. It got really bad during the the lockdown. But one of the things that I've been dealing with is kind of learning how to manage my life when it's not just that. I have clocks everywhere. And it's not just that I have calendars everywhere. It's that I don't perceive time as passing. And it's very frustrating. <laughs> but one of my go-to lines was when people would talk about like what I was, what was coming up or what I was doing. And I'd be like, I don't know. Time is, time is fake. Time isn't real. You know, time is an illusion. And they would laugh because they would also, they would go, oh, ha ha. Yeah. No, time feels weird now because all of my days are the same. And I'm over here like, yeah, what is time? Time is space. Space is time. Therefore, they're both fake. So I have that kind of tied into it. But also, I, my education is in the humanities and the arts, but I, am, I have always been a space nerd. And Star Wars is part of that. And I have both a layman's understanding and fascination with kind of relativity and physics, as well as a minor in philosophy. So I did my minor work in specifically epistemology, which is the study of, of how we know what we know, which is the philosophy of perception in many ways. So like Descartes is like the, <laughs> the starting point of this. I think, therefore I am. And, and everything that follows from this, the mind body problem, you know, how do we connect our mind to our physical, you know, there has to be, there has to be some connection between how we think and the physical matter that is our brain, but we don't know what it is yet. And we've got science looking at it. And we've got philosophy looking at it. And nobody knows, but there has to be connection because, you know, I'm here physically and I am talking to you with my mind, you know? <laughs> so like, that's kind of the background of all of these, these stories. And then Star Wars went and made time travel canon. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> so... I have, I have this, I don't, like, time, time passes, but time passes because we are physically moving through space, and it is a perception that I lack. So therefore, it is, it is a thing that can be perceived, but it is also a thing that is not necessary to perceive, right? Or essential to perceive. But at the same time, again, time is space, and relativity theorizes that if you move through time, if you move through space in a very specific way, you can end up 
in a different time. And we see this, like, we look at the new telescope, right? The James Webb telescope just sent us the pictures that go back almost to the Big Bang. What is that if not time travel into the past, you know? So you have all of this happening kind of all at once. And what this says to me is that time is dependent on A, your motion, and B, relation to the world around you. Therefore, it's not real. Well, it's not that it's not real, it's that it is based on its relation. It's a relation-dependent relationship. I don't, I don't know how to, how to say that better. And that kind of feeds into the kind of perception and, and chaos conversation. It's that if time isn't real, and some of that was to have Obi-Wan Kenobi make the crack about, you know, my head hurt because I just learned time travel was real, right? But it's also to say if the truths that we cling to depend on our point of view, we cannot limit that to social truths. That is also true about what we consider the physical truths of our universe. And this is where the philosophy comes in, because that leads us directly into Plato's allegory of the cave. Yes. Oh, I was just thinking that. Yes. yes. And what we see, you know, the, the allegory, for those of you who don't know, is that, you know, if you are, you know, there's a man in a cave and all he has ever seen his entire life are shadows on the cave wall. All right. That is for him his reality because that is all he is ever able to see and all he is ever able to know. But it doesn't change the fact that those shadows are just shadows and that there is something else that is quote unquote real outside the cave casting those shadows, right? That's the allegory. And so the way that this is often used is to say, I have my perception of the world and you have your perception of the world and we have no way of knowing if what we perceive is real or a quote unquote shadow cast by something else, because all we are limited by our perception, right? So if you're, the truth you cling to is dependent on your own point of view, then to emerge to some sort of greater truth, you have to get rid of your preconceived notions on what reality is and what it is we see. And the truth is, when we think about it, when we think about what science does, what does science do? Science puts things into, it, it finds things, it tries to make sense of things, and it puts categories on things. But those categories are arbitrary, and our understanding is dependent on other things that we see and feel, but those understandings change all the time. You know, for a while, gravity was down, right? When I, when I, when I hold out this apple and let it drop and open my hand, it falls down because gravity goes down. And then we go, oh, no, no, gravity goes towards mass. And then all of a sudden, gravity could be up, depending on what you're looking at and where you're looking from, you know, because all of a sudden directions are, they're all dependent, right? So that's kind of what I was getting to when you get right down to it, is that in order to understand the force enough as a mortal person, you have to first come to terms with the fact that you cannot see it as it is in truth, quote unquote, because you are limited by your perception as a mortal human or mortal person, as a mortal being, right? And that the only way to truly understand and to see the force as it is, is to become one with the force, right? So the idea was that kind of, you know, talking about the mystical, right? It's the, you know, it's almost the progression of the Buddha, right? It's that moving towards nirvana, 
right? It's the more understanding and more understanding and more understanding. The more you think, the more you understand, the less you know, and the less you realize you understand. Because in the end, everything I know is just a lens. It's a frame through which I can perceive the world around me. And even that perception is a lens, right? So it gets very, I don't want to say woo-woo, <laughs> but it does get very like, oh, I have a headache. <laughs> Trying to think <laughs> yourself around in circles with this. Um, and yeah, so like that was kind of, that was kind of the point is I was putting my kind of philosophy of general relativity into the thick of it to kind of say, when we're talking about the force and we're talking about what these wizards can do with the space magic, they are limited. The Jedi Order is limited by how they teach what the force is and how to interact with it. And by changing your understanding of how to interact with the force and by changing your understanding of how the force, of what the force is, you can change your ability to interact with the force. So, you know, why can Luke Skywalker do all of these crazy things? Because no one ever looked at him and said he couldn't, you know? So this is, in many ways, Obi-Wan Kenobi unlearning what he can and cannot do to learn that he can do anything with the right point of view. Okay, that's exactly where I thought you were going <laughs> with all of that. But I had to be sure because... Ah, I just want to unpack this just a little <laughs> bit. And I know like sure. we're running like this is going so long. But, you know, when I go back to my own personal experience with grief, I think that those experiences are the experiences that changed me the most. And those were the experiences where I learned that there is this relational relationship between perception and reality. And that was when I learned for the first time that perception is an attachment. You know, yes. we are so attached to our own perception of what we deem reality to be that sometimes we cannot look past that to understand that the shadow we're seeing on the wall <laughs> yeah. isn't necessarily like the truth of what this whole great existence is and learning that you can manipulate the shadow on the wall you can change your perception you can shine a light yeah you can shine a light so it was this whole like learning for me of letting go of my attachments to certain perceptions yes. and when i was able to let that go suddenly your whole life changes yep. and you can now go into that whole phase of rebuilding yourself because yes. you no longer have the limitations of the attachment and the exactly. limitations of the perception in the first place, which if you think about it, Star Wars really is a whole story about attachment and learning to let certain things go. Yes. And when Kenobi is able to let certain things go, the story starts over again. It begins. Vader absolves him of his guilt in, in a very big way. And it's after Anakin says, this was my this was me. This is this was my fault, not yours. That we see Master Kenobi really yeah. That lets him reframe it. Yes. You know? Yes. Reframe it. They used to call that, oh, and I hated this term <laughs> in school, but they used to call it a 
paradigm shift. Remember yes. when that whole thing was like a huge thing yes. in the 90s? Yeah. Yes. Oh, a paradigm shift. And I hate that term because it just reminds me of like <laughs> the seven habits of highly effective people. And I hated that book. But, you know, the concept is is sound. It is sound. Mm-hmm. Like you can have these massive shifts of perception. It'll change your whole life when you learn to let go of the limitation of that perception. And it's also one of the reasons why it's so important to, first of all, ask why of everything, the world around you, of what you, especially right now, of what you read and what you see, right? Because why, how, who benefits, right? Because so much is being done right now to kind of manipulate people's perception of reality for ends, right? For, as a means to an end, right? It's no one is immune from propaganda and it's everywhere kind of, kind of vibe. But also like when you start asking well, why? That also extends to your own, like, habits, so to speak. So why do I do this this way? Why do I need to do it like this? And so many times the answer is because it's how I was taught. And then the question from there is, well, why was I taught this way? What is it about this method that makes this the way to do it, right? And to find that you don't have an answer to that is, A, terrifying, Right. Because then you have to figure out, well, you need to either figure out a reason or you need to change what you're doing or you need to accept the fact that there is no reason why you do something the way that you do, which can have its own benefits and detriments, I'm sure. But it's very much a a, how do you connect with the world around you? You know, you look at it, you ask it questions until you're at a point where you are satisfied. That's what I felt like was going on here. With this fic, you know, you show us Qui-Gon Jinn helping Obi-Wan Kenobi dismantle his preconceived notions. Yeah, his preconceived yep. notions by asking the questions and encouraging him to ask. Yeah, it was just lovely. It was amazing oh, and incredible. And by the time Obi-Wan meets Luke and says, you'll find that many of the truths we cling to depend greatly upon our own point of view. He is speaking from experience and he's speaking of this experience and that is you know always remember that that is the first lesson about the force that luke skywalker ever gets is that the truth depends on my point of view that's the very first lesson then he gets the lightsaber and is doing the two 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 with the with the the droid but the first lesson is the truth depends on our point of view and our second the second true lesson is that size does not matter which is a reinforcing of that first, which is that your perception dictates your reality. Exactly. It was an amazing thing. I got to the end of it. It was just like, oh my God, (laughs) I see what you did here. So yes, it's amazing fic. I encourage people out there to read it. It's uh, it's a one shot. I love it. You know, we've gone on almost three hours here, so I don't want to keep you any longer. But to close out the show here, I just wanted to know if you had any other fan fiction writers that you admire that you wanted to shout out on the podcast real quick before we wrap up. Well, first of all, I absolutely want to shout out Dietz, uh, Dieter Manfred, because anyone who can write a fic that gets its own fandom deserves praise. And I think if you have never read Hobbit or Lord of the Rings fan fiction, that that is absolutely, now obviously read mine, but Sansuk is absolutely a great entry into Bag and Shield and Gigalus both, and also kind of the fan fiction of the Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit in general, because it is 
and it's there's so much there there's so much to find it's so well done but it also covers the lord of the rings and it covers the hobbit and it covers and it covers and it covers and it, a lot of the the head canons and a lot of the fandom truths about dwarves and dwarf culture come from sansu she's an amazing writer and it's a great fanfic in itself to, to dive into and i think if you want to see what it's like to read kind of that classic 90s heavy hitter fanfic i think absolutely read speranza's work so speranza right now currently publishing in captain america and the marvel fandoms but has fan fiction from due south from stargate atlantis have others so many like i kept popping into her when it came to certain fandoms and it was great but she's an amazing one of the the ao3 originators i do believe or at least friends of i think at the moment those are two that i think are good for doing amazing work continuing to do amazing work and also were influential and formative to fan fiction as a whole yes both legends so make sure y'all go check those out we'll have uh, show notes up with links Scarlet Jedi, thank you so much for taking the time out today, joining us and having this amazing discussion. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, you are so welcome. This has been amazing and such a pleasure. So thank you yes. so, so much. Thank you. Check out her stories on AO3. Give her some love. You can find the Fanfic Maverick online at fanficmaverickpodcast.com, on Tumblr at fanficmaverickpodcast, on Instagram and Twitter at fanficmaverick, and I can always be reached at fanficmaverick at gmail.com. Thank you all so much for listening. Don't forget to subscribe, and I will see you next episode. In the meantime, keep on rolling. <laughs>